Hey, Colin. Good morning, Keith. Can you hear me okay? Yes, can hear you, Grand. And we have our, our members on, and we have the first set of witnesses available. Um, okay. So whenever you're ready, we're good to go. Um, okay. Um, yeah, go ahead then, Keith. Put us into public session. That's us now, Chair. Okay, good morning, members. I declare the meeting open to the public uh, online. I'd like to welcome all of our members who are participating by video conferencing today. And can I remind members about the protocols regarding the use of electronic devices? So, um, members, no apologies have been received. Are members aware of any other apologies today? No, thank you. Okay, members, before I go into um, chairperson's business, there, there is, a, I think, a strong possibility now, given latest developments, that there will be a plenary taking place at some point this morning. What I propose to do, members, is that if we can continue for as long as possible and take as much of the evidence as we can and suspend the meeting around that 12 o'clock um, or earlier, given members, however many members need or wish to travel for that, um, so I'll just be guided by the clerk as to, or, or by members as to when they're available. And I think if members are agreed, we continue taking the evidence sessions and try to work our way through them as much as we can and keep an eye on what's happening in relation to the plenary. Are members content with that? Yeah. Okay. Thank you, members. Um, okay, members, a few items that I wanted to discuss this morning before we start. First of all, they are in terms of chairman's business. Um, the Cure's motion, I want to thank all of the members for their contributions during that debate um, and to point out that we've received correspondence from Cure's NA thanking the committee for bringing forward the motion. Um, that's in your table pack at tab 10.19. Um, as Chair of the APG on Cure's, I would also like to thank members um, for their contribution on that and to thank committee staff for putting the motion together and, and bringing it all forward to the committee. Um, I think it was a very, very welcome, a very important debate in that sense. I do have to say there's a couple of things I was disappointed with, and I think curers, and I, I can see that curers are hugely disappointed. Um, there was an indication during the debate from the minister that he is not in a, illegally able to bring forward the COVID payment that he had said in January he was, he was looking at. And I think that's a matter of huge concern and huge disappointment. But I wonder, would the committee agree that we write to the department requesting the work it is undertaking on providing um, on providing what work it is now undertaking in providing that CURES recognition grant, uh, what work has been done and what how he is working to uh, ensure that that grant can be made? Would members be content if we do that? The other element of it that I was, that I was concerned about was the issue about the, the, the minister had indicated that he was going to carry out a review of the daycare and respite settings. To be honest, I would have expected that review was ongoing all all the time and was, was underway. And, and there has been a lot of reviews clearly taken into a lot of other settings. It seems to me a bit unfair that the only setting that appears to be still the subject of, um, of restrictions that are preventing things from reopening at all in some cases is is a matter of concern. And would the, would the committee be content to be right and ask the minister what's involved in this review, how long it will take, and to urge them to, uh, to uh, have that review completed as quickly as possible with a view to getting the services reinstated. Are members content with that? Yeah. Um, 
Okay, members, the other thing I wanted to draw to your attention was um, an issue that has been raised with me in relation to universal credit for fees for dentistry and optometry. And um, there's a need for people to apply annually to this. This doesn't apply across the rest, any other part of England, Scotland or Wales. It came about as a result of changes in universal credit. However, there, there seems to be a loophole here where people have to apply and I think they have to play uh, annually or maybe sometimes every time they present. Both of those sectors are concerned that some of the more vulnerable people who badly need that treatment, given the additional barrier, go away and don't come back or don't present back. And I, I, I have asked to meet with the minister to discuss that, to see if there's a way to close that loophole and to ensure that vulnerable people are accessing those two important services on the same basis as everyone else. So just want to flag that to members. There may be more correspondence to come on that, which I'll which share on it. The other thing, members, and the last thing in terms of chairperson's business, I do think that in relation to the comments that have been widely discussed from the Europa Hotel, I do think as a committee that, that we should uh, indicate our support to the minister and that, that uh, we in no way... In, uh, in no way support those comments and that I, I think it would be appropriate that we write to the Minister in that in that uh, respect. Would members be content? Yeah, members content. Okay, thank you, members. Going into draft minutes, item three there, uh, refer you to draft minutes uh, of the 10th of June meeting, which is a tab 3.1. Are members content with the minutes? Yeah, thank you. And there are no matters arising from the minutes. So, members, we're going to move then into our first briefing this morning, which is on the Severe Fetal Impairment Abortion Amendment Bill. And this morning we're receiving a briefing. The first briefing is from the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. And, members, we will begin today's briefing with the first of three evidence sessions on this, on this uh, bill that's in front of us. Can I advise, members, that the representatives from the Royal College are here today to give evidence on the bill I refer members to the written submission from the Royal College at tab 5.1 of your pack and to the written submission from the Fetal Medicines Consultants Belfast, which is at tab 5.2. So I would now like to welcome by video link to our meeting, Dr. Carolyn Bailey. And Dr. Carolyn Bailey is chair of the NI committee of the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Can you hear us, Carolyn? Yes, thank you, Chair. Okay, you're very welcome. And Dr. Jonathan Manderson, and Dr. Manderson is Fetal Medicine's consultant in the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Can you hear me okay, Dr. Manderson? Yes, I can. Okay, well, Tafalcharov, uh, Birch, you're both very welcome to the Health Committee this morning. And I will now go back to you, Carolyn, to see if you would like to lead on a briefing for members, and then we can maybe get some questions and answers. Um, <clears throat> thank you, Chair. Um, yes, I should just say that both John and myself work as fetal medicine consultants um, in Northern Ireland. Um, so thank you for the invitation to speak to the Health Committee. Um, our understanding of this bill is that it will remove termination of pregnancy for severe fetal impairment at all gestations, whilst allowing termination of pregnancy to continue for fatal fetal abnormality. And I suppose the first thing I would say is that fatal fetal abnormality is not really a medical or clinical term. I think it is a term that was first used by the European Court um, of Human Rights. Um, it can be very difficult for us to distinguish at times whether 
it is a fatal fetal condition or whether it's severe fetal impairment. And there's a lot of interplay between both of those um, terms. So, for example, in one pregnancy, a fetus may die inside the womb at 16 weeks gestation um, with a fetal condition. And in a different pregnancy, the same condition may allow a live birth um, and that baby may survive for several weeks following delivery. So it's very difficult um, and it, the, the use of these two terms doesn't really reflect the complexity of the cases that we look after. Um, at one stage in 2014, we did meet with the Department of Justice and at that stage they had raised um, the fact of fatal fetal abnormality and could Northern Ireland, <clears throat> our COG gave them a list of physical conditions and we highlighted to them at that point that, that there were real problems with using that term um, and that it would be impossible to create a list and that the term that we had used at that time was severe uh, life-limiting conditions really to encompass both of the terms being used today. So we, we have real concerns that if this bill is passed, um, firstly, that for some fatal fetal conditions, um, clinicians will no longer have the confidence um, in some of those conditions to provide care locally um, for fear of ending up on the wrong side of the law or the regulations. And we know um, that colleagues in the Republic of Ireland have, um, have had such experiences. And secondly, we're really concerned that we will end up in a similar situation to what existed between 2013 and 2019, um, when clinicians were anxious um, and unclear about what was meant by the term an adverse effect on maternal mental health. And that was that arose really because of some of the language that was being used around termination at the time. There were differing legal interpretations of what was meant by mental health, and there was a real lack of clarity. And doctors um, were fearful of this, and therefore they no longer had the confidence to look after women locally. And so when women were being given um, the devastating news of um, a, a diagnosis in what was a much wanted and precious pregnancy, they felt they could no longer look after that woman in Northern Ireland um, due to um, the fact that she was distraught and that she felt she couldn't continue the pregnancy to term. So um, we feel that if the bill is passed, that many women will have to travel to Great Britain in these really um, difficult, um, distressing um, circumstances, that they won't be able to be close to family or to their local healthcare teams, that they will yet again have difficulty in getting post-mortem examinations, and that they will then have to suffer the harrowing experiences of um, bringing the remains home for for burial or cremation. So I think it's also important to say that the number of terminations after 24 weeks for severe fetal impairment um, is really, really small. And many of these, or most of these, are actually just after 24 weeks, so it may be 24 plus two days or three days. And often the reason for that is because um, it can take up to three, sometimes four weeks, to get results of detailed genetic testing, such as microarray. Um, there are some other um, fetal conditions 
where there will be a normal 20-week scan and the the problems in scan don't become apparent until several weeks after 24 weeks. Um, these are not at all common and often are severe neurological conditions. And I think there are other conditions where there is a problem on the 20-week scan, but as the uh, pregnancy advances, those structural abnormalities become much more pronounced and enlarged. And <clears throat> that that might result in a really complex surgical delivery for the woman that will confer significant morbidity and which might affect her fertility and her chances of carrying a further pregnancy. So we, we have weekly uh, multidisciplinary team meetings in the Fetal Medicine Centre in Belfast. We will convene a meeting more urgently than that if there is a time-limited case. And um, there are a wide range of different health professionals involved in these discussions. And certainly beyond 24 weeks, there would always be a discussion between two fetal medicine specialists, um, the consultant's own obstetrician, um, fetal medicine midwife, a specialist, which is often the geneticist, but could be a paediatric surgeon or a fetal neuroradiologist. <coughs> the purpose of the uh, multidisciplinary team meeting is to gather all the evidence to discuss the diagnosis, the complexity of the diagnosis and the likely prognosis um, and the options that would then be available to the woman um, and her partner and to then relay that information to the woman and the partner to um, enable them to make um, the right decision for, for them. And it's important for these decisions not to be rushed. It's important that they have time to think through this really difficult and complex area. And since March, we are aware of some cases where decisions have been rushed because of concerns that parents have raised around the, the media attention that the bill has gained um, around the 24-week limit. Um, a, a limited number of women will choose to have a termination of pregnancy when they're given the diagnosis of a fatal fetal or severe fetal impairment condition. And it's important that all women, um, whatever choices and decisions that they make, that they're well supported um, and, and receive good counselling um, and have good, adequate antenatal support, access to perinatal clinical psychology services. And for those women who do continue to turn, um, you know that there is adequate support for services such as the children's hospice, and other care providers and we fully support that you know parents should be supported in the longer term um, with, with adequate support including financial support. Thank you Chair. Okay thank you and uh, Jonathan do you wish to make some opening remarks or do you want to go to members now for questions? Uh, yeah no I um it's John actually sorry but um uh, no, I would uh, concur with what. John, uh, sorry. You're okay. Uh, I would concur with what uh, uh, Carolyn has said. I mean, her. I work in the Ulster Hospital, Carolyn, in in the Royal, and I suppose between us, we would see that our two units between us, which were both fatal medicine consultants, would see the vast majority of um, fatal, fatal or severe life-limiting fetal conditions in Northern Ireland um, and I suppose we're we're working really at the coal face with this and we're obviously 
dealing with uh, patients who have obviously very wanted pregnancies, you know, happy to be pregnant, and they've come to often a 20-week scan or a scan at another period where they're really told some devastating news. And it's an incredibly emotive time for them, um, for their families. It's a major life event for them. Um, and I think we, we see this day in, day out. And I suppose what we're really saying to the committee is that, you know, we, we're managing these patients. They are real life patients. They're, they're from Northern Ireland. We're wanting to manage them locally with their local family support. And we're wanting to be able to deal with them compassionately. We're not wanting to be judging them. We're wanting to um, also manage them safely. Uh, we all have a high degree of training. Um, you know, we're, we're lucky in Northern Ireland. We do have really highly trained individuals in this field, um, in the field of paediatric cardiology, neuroradiology, fetal medicine. I mean, we, we really do, within Northern Ireland, have a very highly trained uh, group of people who, the majority of which have all trained elsewhere in the world as well, myself in Canada, Carolyn in Texas, other people in, in, in within centres all across the UK. So, so we're a highly trained bunch of people dealing with these conditions. And we're trying to manage patients uh, and, and be supportive of them. And I suppose what we're really seeking is is also the the understanding of that and the support from the health committee in helping manage these patients locally. Uh, we don't want to get back into position where these patients, this the few of them that travel, uh, will travel regardless of decisions in Northern Ireland. We don't want to get back into that position of patients having to travel to proceed with a termination in, in these awful situations for them. We want to support them locally. And we're also really concerned that we want to continue to be, um, that all our staff are very clear. And we are very clear at the minute of the rules and the guidelines and the law. Uh, for many years, there were incredibly grey areas around that. And, you know, this goes back for decades, really. Uh, and more recently as well. And, and we really do not want to go back. Carolyn and I are both old enough to have gone through that whole that whole period. Um, so we know what it is to be in that period for ourselves and for patients. And it's a really difficult place to be, um, you know, when you have lack of clarity, both for us, uh, especially the medical professionals and, and, the, and, and patients. Um, so we want to be supportive and we want to make sure that we're doing the best for these patients and we're giving them all the choices. As Carolyn said, we give them lots of information. We involve lots of groups that um, you know do care for um, uh, children who have had severe disability or certain conditions. We have patient contacts, parent contacts. Who, you know, so we do have really good links now with the children's hospice. Um, and I would also echo Carolyn's uh, appeal I suppose for 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 psychology support, we are incredibly lacking in this in Northern Ireland, and I would urge the health committee to look at this. We have a population of patients who come through with with stillbirths, with uh, fetal anomalies, who uh, really difficult outcomes in pregnancy, and we do not have um, clinical psychologists in every trust across Northern Ireland to support these ladies. So so there is a bit of a postcode lottery. There is one or two uh, in the Belfast Trust, but really across some of the other trusts, it's very piecemeal. Uh, uh, and I think that is something that's severely lacking. And what I've found in my clinical practice, when you 
when you have all the correct supports and the correct information and the correct patient information leaflets uh, for these patients, they, they make really well informed decisions. And, you know, a lot of these patients do continue with pregnancy. Uh, and I, I think the more, the more knowledge you give patients, uh, in some regards, the, the higher percentage of them actually will feel supported enough to continue with their pregnancies in these really difficult circumstances. So I think it is incumbent on all of us um, doctors, but also on those um, making the laws and the rules and advising also to be really cognizant and recognise that actually we can improve this further. And I, I suppose that's really what I would say at this stage. So, you know, I'm happy with Carolyn to take questions. Um, and I suppose what we're really trying to do is just give you a really clear picture of what it's like in these clinical circumstances and these really wanted pregnancies with the, with patients, real life patients who are in, in just huge distress. Um, and it's a really difficult, these are difficult situations to manage. Um, yeah. Okay. Okay. Thank you, John. And if I could just just advise uh, as we when we went to the question and answer session, if everyone can make sure they're on mute when they're not speaking, and if everyone can use a headset, that does help with the sound. There has been little bits of breaks up in, in both of your sound, Carolyn and John. Um. So if you have headsets, maybe give those a try. But uh, we we were able to follow you. Okay. So. I suppose the first question I would have then, Carolyn, is in, for yourself. Um, and you had said in the in your presentation that you had a concern that if the bill passes, clinicians would no longer have confidence to deal with some of these cases locally. So can you elaborate for me a little bit as to what you mean by that and what the impact of that would be? Um, yes. Well, I, I suppose if we look at fatal, fetal abnormality, first of all, and I had mentioned that um, it can be difficult to distinguish between fatal and severe fetal impairment and that there is a lot of interplay between the two. So um, it may be that for some conditions, um, and we're all aware of, of the intimidating language that has been used around um, termination of pregnancy and, um, you know, in 2013, doctors being fearful of being on the wrong side of the law. And I think that is still, you know, something that is, everybody remembers. Um, and we know that our colleagues in the South have experienced it. So I think for some of the fatal conditions, clinicians will begin to think, hmm, right, um, somebody might interpret this differently. Somebody might interpret this as a severe fetal impairment. But yet I know that in a lot of conditions, the baby will die inside the womb. Um, I'm worried about being on the wrong side of the law and therefore the, there is um that they act differently as, as people did after 2013. Um, and similarly uh prior to 2013 many of these women were looked after in Northern Ireland um usually under the um clause where it said there was an adverse effect on the um severe adverse effect on the mother's mental health um, and it was acknowledged that a woman may have had underlying mental health issues or that in those circumstances where a woman was given devastating news, that she was so distraught that she um, felt that she couldn't continue the pregnancy to term. Uh, and so some terminations of pregnancy were therefore undertaken on that basis. Um, if we remove the severe fetal impairment bill, it means that um, there is there is nothing written down to 
make clinicians feel that they can clearly act and um, continue with the termination of pregnancy for a woman in those very difficult circumstances under the mental health regulation, which is currently regulation four in the new um, regulations. Uh, and that goes back to the lack of clarity, the differing legal interpretations that we were given at the time when we, we asked what was meant by maternal mental health. Uh, and the impact of that would then be that um, those cases of severe fetal impairment, some of which may be considered fatal, that those women will then have to travel yet again to Great Britain um, as they did between 2013 and 2019. Okay, thank you, thank you, Carolyn. Um, your sound did uh, was 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 poor there at a couple of occasions, Carolyn. But I was able to follow the most of that. I have to say. So, um, can I just check, oh, Clark? Is Carolyn sound poor with you as well, or is it just sounds okay at this end, Chair? Okay, so okay. Well, listen. So I was able to follow it. Okay, Carolyn. So thank you. Were you finished there on that on that end? Um, no. Yes, apologies about the sound. Yes, I'm Thank finished. You. Thank you. Um, okay, the uh, the other thing then I wanted to just uh, follow up with yourself, John, is around that whole issue of psychological supports and uh, the fact that, that, that there's a gaps within that and I think hospice support was mentioned there as well can you can you sort of elaborate a, a little bit in terms of the difficulties that that causes um in 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 terms of supporting people to continue with pregnancies yeah um yeah I think I think historically we've been really poor at this in Northern Ireland and uh, you know obviously we as doctors have have been asking sort of I suppose for funding <laughs> yet another thing for to be funded but we, we see the need for it within um, the pregnancy situation because there you know pe people having even miscarriages moving right through to severe fetal anomalies and and then moving through to stillbirths and then moving through to really difficult birth experiences you know where they have very traumatic birth experiences you know there's a huge a uh, number of people that are affected in pregnancy uh, in a negative way um, you know emotionally psychologically um, and certainly you know our focus today on the severe fetal anomaly fatal fetal group I mean the, these women you know these are wanted pregnancies they come through and they and 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 you know we we as doctors you know because we're working every day it's you, you, we have to remember that for this patient this could be their one pregnancy or or one of their most major life events in their life and, and it's an incredibly emotive time and i think they need supported and you know we try our best you know we are we see them we counsel them we're very sympathetic we have um fetal medicine midwives who uh, who would ring these patients and keep in touch with them some trusts would have bereavement support but but again, it's very piecemeal, and again, a lot of patients are not seen, or or don't have uh, those facilities to to be seen, and and will go, um, you know, will maybe have a review with a consultant in six or eight weeks. But really, what they need is ongoing psychological support from a professional trained in the field, and that will make their life moving forward um, 
better uh, will reduce the numbers that then have like a post-traumatic stress problem uh, and will help them in any future pregnancy because they enter future pregnancies incredibly nervous and worried and and i think as well that sort of those supports adding those supports in at an early point for patients will allow them to fit to, to have the confidence to make you know good decisions informed decisions decisions where they're supported um so I, th- I think I think there is a huge need and a huge gap in our service here um, for uh, in these sort of supports. I know I think Carolyn can maybe update. You know the Royal would have someone, but again, these people are in, inundated and and really only work so many hours a week and just cannot see the number of patients coming through. Uh, and, and I, you know, I see it within our service. Um, you know, again, we uh, really struggle to. Um, to give these ladies the psychological support they need uh, and even when they're referred back to their GP to be referred on to a psychologist you know the waiting lists are absolutely enormous and just you know the, the earlier you manage these patients the better you know leaving something half a year a year or two or three years down the line just does not work for these patients um, so I, th- I think that does need looked at um, uh, and I sort of encourage you you all really to look to look at and to look at funding for that yeah uh, yeah thank you Joe. and i have to say actually i have dealt with uh, on on several occasions and i'm sure all reps have not only and and, and obviously the women who are impacted are, are first and foremost in their minds but actually the impact on on fathers as well in terms of stillbirth and loss of pregnancies is massive but we're not even at that stage of of supporting yeah. the women, never mind the other the other people and the other family members affected. So I think that's a huge issue indeed, and thank you for that answer. I'm going to go to members now. So first, I'm going to Paula Bradshaw, then Carol Nikillen, Jonathan Buckley, and then Jerry Carroll. That's who I have at this point in time. So I'll go to yourself, Paula, please go ahead. Um, thank you very much for your uh, written and oral presentations this morning. Um, I just wanted, I asked a question last week, um, and I I think it's probably more directed at you, John, and that's really just to give an outline of how long and and what steps you have to go through in terms of training and um, duration in different posts does it take for you to become a fetal medicines consultant? Thank you. Oh, I can't, I can't hear. I think you may be Sorry. you may be on mute, John. I was on mute. John, you're on mute, and maybe we need broadcasting yeah. to. Yeah, go ahead now, John, please. Yeah, sorry about that. Uh, yeah, yeah, no. Uh, uh, to, I suppose to give you an example, I we all train as general obs and gynae consultants, and that training takes uh, probably about nine years. Um, on top of that, then um, we do to become a subspecialist in fetal medicine. You do a a three-year training program, one year is research, two years uh, subspecialty work within fetal medicine. Um, often that research extends out. So in my case, and you know, I did a, a doctorate as well. So within that, so I, I was sort of training in that whole area for four years. Um, one of those years I was in Canada, in Toronto, in, in, in a fetal medicine centre. So the majority of us have trained to that level. So we have all the general training that any OBS and gynae consultant has. But in, in addition to that, we have an additional two to four years training. Um, and then we're working, obviously, in those fields. Uh, fetal, the fetal medicine field within the UK is, is really a world leader, but um, it's also a very close-knit community. 
uh, we would attend all those uh, sort of yearly meetings with very close contacts with our colleagues across the UK and Ireland. Um, you know, we, we've, we we're really connected through the Royal College in, in London, um, uh, and and we would be we would have of trainees who train in Dublin, train in London, and train elsewhere in our units and train across. And, and go to to some units specifically for training in certain areas. Um, we have very strong links at the minute in Belfast with St George's Hospital in London. Um, you know, at a personal level and indeed at a at a at a work level. And we have a lot of patients. Um, certainly in my unit, I would send my ladies with twin problems, twin twin transfusion problems, laser treatment. You probably some of you may have seen Doctor Baskey on. On the television recently in Saving Babies' Lives uh, with doing fetoscopic surgery, that's the consultant that we link with in London. So so we're, we're, we are highly trained. As part of our training, uh, we train not just in fetomaternal medicine. We train, we spend time in the pathology labs, in the genetic labs. Um, we spend time in intensive care, managing really sick patients. You know, so, so it's a really thorough um uh, training program i spent time with and uh, sitting weekly with a psychologist for about three months in clinics uh, where she was t- talking to patients so we have a really broad spectrum of training and then obviously our our practice is very clinical so we're really dealing um dealing with patients and we link with our practice with other specialties such as neuroradiology looking at mris now so technology keeps advancing Genetics has advanced, so what we can do now and what we can do in the future will will continue to to advance. So we we do there are conditions that can be tested for, uh, you know, within families now that it, and, and you can predict risk. You can uh, offer early early diagnosis. You can offer, in fact, diagnosis before uh, three IVF procedures before implantation. So there's a huge uh, variety of of treatment options uh, for patients with. Uh, really serious conditions that run through families, um, so we, we've, we're, we're you know we're quite a tight knit bunch, I suppose, within the UK, um, and and we we are really, uh, I suppose, we we work uh, in a multidisciplinary team. So we we are regularly working with our paediatric cardiology colleagues, uh, with our um, neuroradiology colleagues in the Royal. Uh, with our paediatric colleagues massively um, working with them and in counselling and and management and these patients would all be offered counselling with um, a paediatrician they'd all be offered counselling with uh, you know a, a, an, an expert in the area that the baby is affected in such as you know a spina bifida case we now have introduced um, a system where potentially those babies can even be operated on in the womb uh, and referred over to uh, either London or in, into Belgium. Um, so, so there are huge advances, and it is uh, a really highly uh, uh, trained area. So, so that that's basically what all of us who are consultants in fetal, and I think really at the minute there are about five of us in Northern Ireland trained to this level. Um, and uh, hopefully some more coming on board uh, within the next couple of years. But that, that's, I suppose, so we, we are the people, I suppose, often at the at the, the code face here. But, but that gives you an idea of really the training that we go through and um, get to this point. 
Thank you very much. It's very comprehensive. So I just want to know what your reaction then is that some of the to some of the accusations when we first debated this bill in the, in the chamber, and that was that um, people like yourselves were coercing women into abortion, and that you were performing abortions on the ground of cleft lip and club foot, as we've seen in headlines in the papers. What is your response to those accusations? Thank you. Um, well, I, I can respond. I know Carolyn would probably be keen to respond as well. I mean, that's completely untrue. Uh, very far, far, very far from the truth. I mean, no baby would be um, have a termination for a, a cleft lip or a talipase or an isolated uh, single defect like that. I think that the problem is that maybe there has been a misinterpretation um, of figures and. Uh, people do not realise when you maybe have babies with severe fetal abnormality, they have a mixture of a complexity of conditions, uh, possibly involving their brains, their hearts. Uh, and on top of that, they may, in addition, have a cleft lip or a talipase of their foot. And that, I suppose in those cases, those babies will have multiple, multiple abnormalities. One of them may be a cleft lip. But, you know, we would we would certainly refute that. Um, we are a caring and compassionate group of people. Um, we are trained to high level. We're trying to manage really difficult situations and we're managing our local population uh, to a high degree. We do have, um, and, and we would encourage people to get postmortems. So there is an audit process really looking at what we have diagnosed in ultrasound and then uh, confirming that then by a post-mortem of a baby um, and that gives valuable information uh, moving forward to future pregnancies. So we really strongly encourage that uh, for women as well to go forward and have post-mortems. Um, so there is oversight to the system um, and certainly we would refute um, a lot of those uh, allegations that were made. Um, it's it's uh, really disingenuous, actually, to be honest. Um, but maybe Carolyn would like to have a word on that as well, because it, it was quite um, quite something to hear all that. Um, yes, thank you. Um, yeah, I would agree with everything that John has said. Um, and I know we practice in Northern Ireland, but even thinking and knowing the units that we liaise with in England, so, you know, St George's, Birmingham Women's, Glasgow, um, you know, that that just would not happen in those units. <laughs> and we just know that that wouldn't happen in those units. And I think it emphasises the importance of having, you know, good, strong, multidisciplinary teams to discuss cases, um, which ensures sort of good governance within units. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think that's really important. Uh, and, of course, there is bad practice everywhere. I, I would think um, I agree with John about, you know, the isolated club food or talipes and, and cleft lip, I imagine that that is just listed as part of um, a spectrum of abnormalities in one baby, perhaps with severe chromosomal problems. Um, but also the implication that um, these babies would be terminated up until term is just something which um, Will, will not happen in Northern Ireland, and I don't. I, and I know it doesn't happen in St George's. I know, you know. Obviously, there we have had discussions over the years, or things have arisen. Um, so we're very well aware of of what is acceptable and unacceptable in units in the UK. And, and I imagine we always will get somebody who doesn't 
practice well. That is inevitable in any walk of life. Um, and the protection against that is having strong multidisciplinary teams, good care pathways and, and good governance. Um, thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. And, and, and I suppose it does actually just uh, brings to mind the fact that actually here in the north, families who have a bereavement of this nature actually also need to travel to England for paediatric pathology, given we don't have a service here on the island. And I have raised that with the minister, but that's another another significant gap and, and a significant hardship for families who have been bereaved. OK, um, going then to Carol Nikhilin, Carol Lanaray Lidahull. Uh, thank you very much, um, Colm. And Carlin and John, I just want to put it in a record that I really appreciate not only you coming to the committee today, um, but certainly appreciate the professionalism and compassion in which you have to deal with every day, and particularly supporting women and families through some very, very difficult situations. So I want to put that in a record. I also want to put in a record that I trust your decision. I think we need to trust our clinicians to help people make the right decision for them. And I trust whatever decision people make as well. Mm -hmm. um, I think the idea um, and the, the question I would have is that in relation to this proposed bill coming forward, people will who find themselves, and, and as you said, it's a, a very small percentage, but women will find themselves perhaps when they discover very late in their pregnancy that their baby is not going to survive and they want to make a decision to terminate. So, and that is the case where baby babies can't survive out of the womb. They will still have to travel if this bill or any other bill goes through. And then the issue that I have is that you raised it, John, and Colm raised it as well, that our psychological services aren't what they should be to support not only the women, but their families. So what you've kind of covered that, and that's something Orlea in particular has really um, majored on. But one of the things, and Paula touched on this, one of the things I found quite disturbing, and even from talking to some constituents, <clears throat> that there is a suggestion in this bill that anyone who discovers that their child in the womb has a, a, a either a cleft palate or a club foot will be encouraged to terminate. Now, that, that for me not only has hurt those families, but it's also hurt some clinicians as well. We received... <laughs> presentations from the Royal College of Midwives and I act last week very very credible and compelling and compassionate people like yourselves so it's really just uh, for your commentary on that and um, and just uh, what would you feel the implications would be in terms of your ability to practice and advise if this bill was to go through thank you um well, I, I think it, it is unfortunate that that is out there now that um, people do think that an isolated club foot or um, cleft lip may be terminated. Um, I mean, that is just completely untrue. And if you speak to any um, 
fetal medicine unit in the UK, I would think they they would also say that that is completely untrue. And again, I think that is data that is recorded, but it is recorded as part of a spectrum of abnormalities in one baby, which usually reflects an underlying sphere chromosomal or genetic condition. But the abnormalities are counted differently and separately. Um, so I, I think it is important, you know, it is important to try and, uh, and dispel that myth um, throughout Northern Ireland. Um, I think, and I think that's part of the problem with abortion because it is such an emotive subject, and particularly here in Northern Ireland, that there are all of these ongoing discussions in separate silos, um, and there's a lot of secrecy. And I think we are all about transparency uh, and the importance of, you know, having good governance within trusts, which you can provide with good, very multidisciplinary team meetings with very good care pathways. Um, with very good support networks for parents, irrespective of what decision that they make, and possibly, uh, you know, more discussion about this regionally will help to dispel those myths and actually um, show what the support and what the pathways are for women who we end up um, visiting fetal medicine, having to visit fetal medicine centres. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Carol. And going then to Jonathan. Go ahead, Jonathan, please. Thank you, Chair. Can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. yeah, I'm hearing you, Jonathan. Yeah. Okay. Uh, th thank you, Carolyn and John, for, for coming to the committee this morning. Could I ask how do you respond to the recent Scottish Cardress report on congenital anomalies, which said termination of pregnancy for fatal anomaly accounted for almost all of the non-live-born babies, showing the impact of antenatal screening on the outcome of babies uh, with these specific types of anomalies, and the fact that in England in 2018, 85.2% of pregnancies with an antenatal diagnosis of Down syndrome led to abortion. Um, well, I think um, in relation to the figures for the last um, the, the last part of your comment about Down syndrome, um, I think firstly, a lot of women choose not to have screening. Um, screening is optional, and I think um, about 45% of women choose not to have screening. Um, so I suppose the figures relate to those women who, who did have screening and where a diagnosis was made. I think there has been a lot of um, work done in the last few years in England. Um, there was a consensus statement released by the college, or COG and the Royal College of Midwives, supported by the Royal College of Midwives and Society of Radiographers, which looked at sort of the terminology around screening and emphasising the importance of, you know, proper education and the importance of of proper counselling before a woman actually has screening and what the implications of that screening process are. Um, so proper counselling both before and after, the importance of health professionals giving sort of non-biased information and, and not judgmental information. Um, and I think the importance of women being aware of the support services that are available um, for children that do have disabilities um, 
I think in Northern Ireland, actually, although there is much to be improved upon, that we, you know, have good networks and mechanisms in place, which of course can be improved. Um, and that is something that can perhaps be discussed in, you know, in future discussions with the health committee. Um, I think there is a lot of education that needs to happen around screening. I know the RCOG had worked with Down Syndrome Association and some other groups, and they looked at the terminology that has been used in some of the guidance and the online online e-learning platforms. And together they have modified that terminology. Um, so I think you know, changes have been happening in recent years, and I'm sure there is room for improvement moving forward. See, I suppose from from what what I've listened to there, and obviously it, your presentation was cutting out slightly with me. I'm not sure if that's on my end or your airline, but I feel that the approach is very much based on the perspective of mothers who want to end their pregnancies uh, as, as opposed to, to the options. Uh, what would you say to someone with Down syndrome or another non-fatal disability who says that having a law that says unborn babies with disabilities like theirs can be aborted up to birth precisely because of their disability makes them feel like they should not exist? Yeah, I, I you know, com- completely um, can see why they feel like that. I think um, it is also, uh, uh, you know, it is not to my knowledge something that happens in units in England. I can understand that there have been maybe one or two cases, but in good, well-renowned units, um, they would not consider termination up until term for um, uh, a Down syndrome. And I know that from chatting to colleagues in England. So, um, and that would certainly not be the case in Northern Ireland. We would all be aghast at something like that um, happening. And um, so I, I think, you know, part of the problem in Northern Ireland is that the law has been very unclear. And we did have a law that was based on maternal mental health in the past, which then became very unclear and women were having to travel. So I, I think each case is um, a, a separate case. Each woman is a woman with very different circumstances, um, maybe different circumstances at home, maybe other health problems, maybe um, circumstances that really none of us really know until we're in those circumstances how we would feel and what support we feel that we have. So I, I know that there is, the law is now based on um, a fetal problem, but all these decisions are made basically from the maternal perspective. Um, and women make very different decisions, very many different decisions. Um, so I would see that it is still coming from the maternal perspective and that those decisions are made on a case, case basis after thorough consultation um, and counselling and giving information to the parents to um, make them aware of what support would be available, which may help them to continue with the pregnancy. Yeah. Again, I, w- I would, I suppose, concur with what Carolyn has said. I mean, Northern Ireland is slightly different from England. We don't have the same 
screening that England would have. I mean, England would be screening for, and, and the reason Down syndrome is used is because it's the most common chromosome disorder. Um, and I suppose in, in England, all units are offering screening in the first trimester. So in the first 12 to 14 weeks um, for that condition, Northern Ireland, we aren't. Um, and indeed, if you were going to introduce a new screening program for that, it would require money and training and and all that goes with that. So we currently don't offer that. So it's done sort of piecemeal on patients that ask. Uh, and it's, it's often done at sort of 15, 16 weeks as a blood test. But we don't per se have a screening program across Northern Ireland to pick up Down syndrome. Uh, so what is happening uh, in these wanted pregnancies is that things are being found on ultrasound at 20 week scans or indeed people are going privately and having private genetic screening at an earlier point and coming with a diagnosis of, of certain conditions. So it's not in any way a, a targeted search uh, for um, program. I mean, the, the, this, the reason the 20 week scan is done is to, is to pick up conditions that so we can manage patients properly have them referred to the right units so the babies can with cardiac conditions gut conditions brain conditions can be managed in the womb if possible delivered and supported and and and, and you know delivered in the right places to manage them immediately after birth and again through fetal medicine we're very much managing patients uh, on a patient by patient basis and we're respecting the decisions that patients are making but we are totally supportive of whatever and we would like to be supportive of whatever decision that particular patient makes uh, within their, you know, within what they have, the information that they have been given within their particular, and not not every pregnancy is the same. Um, and I suppose that, that is what we would say. We're very much supporting uh, people and, and, you know, supporting them to continue pregnancies as well. And, you know, giving options in life-limiting conditions you know, where babies may not be expected to survive for very long of, of linking through to the children's hospice as well is really invaluable. I've certainly had a number of patients who've even spent two to three weeks within the children's hospice, um, you know, with their little babies. And, and, and I find that really invaluable, um, you know, making memories. Uh, and, and we, you know, we're very much involved with that. And, and I suppose we would be saying, you know, help us more in this regard, because I do believe that the more support we give these women, uh, and, and I think it's really important to have that support and management locally, um, the more support we give them, the more women will feel confident to continue with pregnancy. But there still will be patients who um, make it make a really difficult decision in their lives that they don't want to continue with the pregnancy. And I suppose that in, in, in all situations, uh, including Down syndrome, and th those are really difficult places for those patients to be. And, and I think we do need to be able to support uh, patients, whatever their decision is, because this hits everybody across all social divides, all religious divides, etc. And it's, it's you know, it, it, it's something in their lives that they need support with uh, and, and we would like as local clinicians to be able to do that. Okay well I suppose probably and going back to, to Caroline's point about it's not something. Very brief Jonathan. The, the law sends a signal and says Jonathan very can, brief question please. You can abort up to birth for Downs. So do you not think that it is odd that doctors are asked to fight to keep premature babies alive 
while at the same time intervening to end lives of babies of exactly the same gestation because they have a disability. How do you think the double standard makes people with disabilities feel? Because I think this gets to the very nub of what the bill's purpose is. Well, I don't think that the law does say that you can uh, abort uh, a baby with Down syndrome up until term. Um, I think um, what happens is that for any conditions beyond 24 weeks, um, there is a multidisciplinary team meeting in fetal medicine units um, where all the information is available, including um, the, the diagnosis, the complexity of the diagnosis and the likely prognosis. And I would, um, from chatting to colleagues, suggest that in, in most units after 24 weeks, um, that in most cases of isolated Downs, where there aren't any other complex associated abnormalities, that most students would not agree to that. So I don't think that the law does say that you can uh, um, abort uh, a pregnancy with Downs up until term. Um, I think that is, you know... <laughs> That that is not what is what has been practiced, and I think that needs to be very clear. We are not doing, um, you know that 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 has been used a little bit. That is not what is happening, and that is not what we would be wanting to do. And I would agree entirely with Carolyn. You know, each case is is taken as an individual case, but but we would not certainly not be promoting that in any shape form. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. And moving on to Jerry Carroll. Go ahead, Jerry, please. Thanks, Chair. Thanks, uh, Carlin and John, for your uh, presentation this morning and the, the briefing paper that we got um, before. Uh, just a couple of quick questions. I mean, I suppose there's some, I think, information in your um, in, in the written uh, evidence, which is quite important and useful. I just want to you know, tease some of that out here this morning. Um, I think the comment about um, you know needing to have and if the the bill is uh, progressed and that it will ultimately prevent and I'm quoting here a patient-centered individualized approach to care for women who may already uh, be distressed and ignore the clinical complexity of severe fetal impairment. I mean we in the health committee constantly talk about having a patient-centered uh, uh, approach of care, patient-centered focus uh, of of health. And that's true for um, for everything, and it should be the same when it comes to uh, pregnancy and uh, terms of terminations. And, and obviously, uh, I think it's important to challenge that idea um, that women are just you know deciding you know willy nilly without con uh, consulting with their NDTs um, or or their um, or whomever uh, that they uh, need or, or or have to get a, a termination. So I think challenging that is is important. Um, just the uh, one of the paragraphs in your presentation um, I discussed about um, uh, terminations in England and Wales in 2019, um, where Down syndrome was mentioned. Um, there, it says here there was a total of 12 abortions. So um, I, I'm not sure if that's just solely for a, um, a, a diagnosis of, of Down syndrome, um, but could you maybe tease that out? Because I think there's... Uh, it's certainly what appears to be uh, either a misconception or an accuracy in, in claiming that um, the, the majority of, of diagnosis of Down syndrome end up in a, in a termination, which uh, my understanding is that's not the case. And could you maybe either speak to that figure or, or maybe uh, kind of challenge that uh, misconception that is 
uh, unfortunately uh, repeated. Yes, I, I thank you, um, Jerry. I think that those figures relate to after 24 weeks gestation, um, where um, it is most likely because there has been a late diagnosis because of some other complex problem um, in a baby with Down syndrome. So they can have complex cardiac abnormalities, sometimes quite severe neurological, structural neurological problems. Um, and I think that that is what that refers to. So. Um, later detection after 24 weeks. I think a lot of the discussion um, you know, about late termination um, up, up until term, I mean, that is, is just not accurate. Um, sometimes people will also refer to late termination as anything after 24 weeks. So there is a little bit of um, uh, confusion as to is it 24 plus 1, 24 plus 2 weeks, or are we talking about term? But the figures relate to Down syndrome after 24 weeks where there was another complex um, abnormality detected, and sometimes those aren't detected until after 24 weeks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks. Um, and just, just, yeah, just another quick point. Um, in the presentation as well, it says about, and I think this is crucial, it kind of speaks to something what Jonathan said. Um, the presentation said that some women will choose, in the event of a uh, fetal fetal diagnosis, some women will choose to continue the pregnancy with the option of palliative care. And I know you kind of touched upon that already, uh, and that decision must be respected, supported, and again, an individualized care plan agreed. And I think that's crucial here. Um, this is really, um, you know, from from my and, and I think most of the committee's point of view, that um, you need to have a, a situation where people aren't uh, aren't forced uh, to make decisions. Um, uh, and I think this bill actually, and we kind of teased this out a bit last week, might actually force women to um, uh, make decisions uh, before the 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 twenty the twenty four week uh, period. Uh, and obviously, you know, women should have access to all the you know palliative care and support and and uh, uh, you know, psychologist, psychologist support as well. Uh, and just finally, the um, the the figure for I think this is the yeah. So if the law was was changed, if if the, the bill was passed, um, I think this would prevent five women a year from uh, access and termination after twenty four plus weeks. And to me, obviously, you know, that's not only. Uh, a tiny amount of, of people, but also the amount of distress that will cause those women seems to be um, quite uh, quite uh, quite large, and also you know a lot of stress it would cause people who have uh, you know maybe had stillbirth or, or other kind of maybe traumatic or difficult pregnancy. So uh, I, I take it it's um, yeah. You want to come in there? Sorry, Carlin. Yeah. yeah. Yes, I, I suppose um, just in relation to the last two comments that you made. Um, I had mentioned five patients in the report, but in fact, there were there were less than that. Um, and most of those were just after 24 weeks. So in the 24th to the 25th week of pregnancy, um, most of those were because results hadn't come through in time. And obviously, with data protection and privacy laws, we can't expose, you know, to say what those conditions were. Um, but they were very complex Um conditions. I don't know. Unfortunately, we can't discuss them because we, we could then 
demonstrate the, the complexity of the nature of those problems. I think and also in relation to your comment before that about supporting women who continue with the pregnancy, that is very much, I think, where you know how we start off conversations um, in the fetal medicine unit. In the fetal medicine unit in Belfast, we do have relatively good support that it could be better, but we have good antenatal bereavement, uh, midwife support, clinical psychology. Most of the fetal medicine consultants have been to the children's hospice um, to see the hospice and the care that they provide. We have had meetings, including regional meetings with the children's hospice, and uh, we're just about to start to pilot some care pathways with them um, for antenatal care and care during labour and after delivery, um, just to ensure that the, the care is as comprehensive um, uh, and as supportive as possible. We also do have um, a, a link nurse midwife who right. works between us and the children's hospice. Um, and she will come, has come to the fetal medicine unit, fetal medicine clinics. She has come to some of our um, monthly large meetings with um, all the other specialists that call perinatal surgical meetings, which are very multidisciplinary. Um, we have neonatal input into our medicine clinics several times a week where neonatologists will come down and talk to parents about the implications of the problem and what it is likely to be like for the baby following delivery and what sort of um, you know things that parents will have to expect. So there was a huge amount of support. Um, I'm sorry if that didn't come across in my first um, presentation. Um, that is very much what we are about in fetal medicine. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for that information. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Jerry. And then I have Orlea and then Chara. So go ahead, Orlea, please. Thank you, Chair. Um, and just first of all, to, to John and Carlin, um, I would like to say just to um, express my thanks to you both and your role as doctors, as clinicians, who are obviously dealing with the most complex and difficult of situations, um, but who are clearly providing that support and treatment for many women and families um, going through something that that doesn't bear thinking about unless you, you've experienced it yourself. I just want to say thanks. Thanks to you both for that and for your comments that you have made today. Um, John, on the, the issues that you had raised around the lack of clinical psychologists, so that, that's not a new issue that's came to the committee and certainly not a new issue that's, um, that's came through to myself. So we are aware of it and we have actually been dealing with, trying to open up a conversation with the Minister of, of Health um, to appoint a lead psychologist onto the management board for the department. So you're continuously getting that sort of input of, you know, the level of need or the gaps that are there, um, just to make sure that that um, that those gaps aren't widening. But we are aware that it is a problem and I'm certainly happy to, to continue on lobbying with the, the, the minister and the department to try and sort of um, enhance those services because I suppose the whole conversation that we're having today, it's been brought up repeatedly around the impact that all of this, that the situations um, have on, you know, not just the, the, the woman's mental health, but also the, the mental health of, of the, the broader family that's that's going through. Um, and I think that, you know, we've obviously seen 
in, in recent times, you know, in recent months and over the past year, we have seen a good bit of progress around the perennial mental health overall and, you know, some additional investment going into that. But I think it would be unfortunate if we were, you know, almost taking a backward step where although we are talking in very, very small numbers, Carlin, as you had just out- outlined, you know, of the number of people that, that this bill would impact on, the fact is, is that the mental health impact will be even more profound, even though it is a, such a small number of people. So it's just to say, it's just to say that. And um, but I'm glad, John, I wrote down all that feedback that you gave just around the gaps in the service. And as I say, as I'm, I'm more than happy to to follow up on, on some of that. And, and I will intend on doing that. So just maybe two points um, you could come back just with, with some views. <laughs> I know that Carl had mentioned about the briefings that we had last week from RCM and NIACT. And in, I think it was in the, the NIACT briefing, you know, they were obviously talking about some of the feedback that they were getting back from clinicians and doctors. And it was really um, a case of some of the arguments that have been made in the second reading of the bill just weren't based on reality. Mm. And that doctors <clears throat> had almost found this insulting and they were fearful of that whole, you know, that really important relationship between clinician and patient which is trust you know that needs to be there and we all have a responsibility to try and maintain that and to support that for the clinician and for the patient um but one of the issues raised also was around the fact that um throughout this this legislation this proposed legislation which which is obviously it's a, it's a really complex piece of medical legislation that doctors haven't been consulted or spoken to so i would just maybe like your feedback <coughs> have any on that in terms of the bill being proposed and brought it through its different stages and maybe any correspondence or conversations you've had with the minister around some of your concerns around that thank you yeah thank thanks for that i'm glad that 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 is being sort of actively looked at and championed um the psychological support um and hopefully that'll bear fruit um yeah no i think it was as carolyn said earlier it was very disappointing to hear some of the language used and you know we do um we do need the trust of our patients um and and we don't want we would see this as a very backward step if the bill was passed we'd be going back into a situation of a very gray area as carolyn has said where we would be trying to make decisions based on maternal mental health and mental well-being and we already know that i mean certainly our trust challenged that because we felt that the mental health uh, bar in the older legislation was set at a very high level and in fact what was happening wasn't legal uh, and i think that uh, led to that period of, of six years where, where doctors didn't know what they were doing so uh, or, or what they could do or, or couldn't do and that ultimately impacted on us as physicians but it also impacted on, on patients and we really do not want to go back there because it's incredibly unsettling within our units with, um, for all our staff you know people not happy with what's happening other people really uncertain what's happening it's, it's really uh, debilitating to be honest uh, and we would uh, be very fearful uh, if that bill was passed that we'd be back into a really difficult situation for us as doctors and uh, but also patients as you have rightly said the small numbers would 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 definitely be very affected and there would then then be a ripple effect from that onto their wider families and also a ripple effect down into uh, other decisions that we currently do make with certainty, 
you know that that we would even if you would then be looking at that and going well look is that okay to make that decision or not and i i think as karen she she said earlier in the conversation she was very clear about how you know the, the how that could affect all of us um so we would be very content we know where we are with the guidelines at the minute we really know where we are with uh, with everything and and you know and, and i think we we need to be um trusted and you know we need to be uh, supported and 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 you know and as i've said before we do have multidisciplinary teams with good governance we have uh, post-mortem backups we you know we have regular meetings with our pathology colleagues over in alderhey um which actually lowest based in liverpool offers a really good service for for patients from northern ireland much better service than we had while it was all collapsing over here uh, for years um so we actually have a really good quick turnaround we get a much much quicker turnaround in reports now um but it's not ideal obviously uh, we would love to have the same quality of service based at home but but that's maybe a, a discussion for another day but but we do have good supportive links with Aldred Hay, they've been over, they've been in all of our hospitals discussing things. So, so we, we have that backup. Um, so we would urge um, people not to change things uh, and to continue to support uh, and don't use the language that has been used, which is inaccurate. Um, and so I think that's maybe Carolyn wants to say something. I think she's maybe already dealt with that earlier in the conversations. Thanks. Yes, just um, to my knowledge, there has been no correspondence with any, certainly not with any field medicine consultants, and I don't think any of my other colleagues in wider obstetrics and gynaecology were consulted prior to the, the reading of the bill. Okay. Listen, Carlin and John, thank you very much. Okay, thank you, Leah and panel. And going then, finally, in terms of indications, I have now to Chiara Hunter. Go ahead, Chiara Ledon. Thank you, Chair, and thank you to both John and Carlin for being here uh, this morning. Your contributions have been very helpful, and it's really helpful for myself to hear kind of the medical insight and aspects uh, of this. Um, I really appreciate the point that you had made around prenatal screening here. Um, I've raised over the past number of weeks to other panels about compared to other parts of these islands. Um, it's really quite poor, so just to note that point. But um, today, essentially, uh, I have a question. Uh, I'm just looking at a bit of clarity around gestation. Uh, and at what point of gestation most uh, fatal fetal abnormalities are found and also severe fetal impairments. So any clarity on that, I do recognise every case is unique, um, but any information would be very helpful. Thank you. Um, well, most will be picked up at the 1920 week scan. That's when most structural abnormalities would be picked up or suspicions of a you know severe underlying chromosomal abnormality. Some will be picked up a little bit sooner. There will be um, a very occasional major fatal um, fatal fetal abnormality that might be picked up at the booking scan, but most will be at the nineteen twenty week scan. Yeah, and some some also I think come through to us because a number of patients choose to have genetic testing. In the private sector, there are tests that you can have done a maternal blood sample that looks at the chromosomes of the fetal chromosomes in the maternal blood from 10 weeks. So there are patients that come through um, around the, the 
12 to 14 week stage as well with a diagnosis of a, chrom a severe chromosomal condition that we know is fatal or severely um, severe impairment. Um, so, but yes, you're quite right. There isn't a wholesale screening program across all our trusts at an, at, in the first trimester at an earlier point. So we are relying on, I suppose, uh, you know, the, the, the scan would pick up abnormality. Um, the other thing to say about that is not all babies with severe chromosomal conditions have a scan abnormality um, as well. So, so often when you see a structural abnormality, uh, on top of a chromosomal abnormality, it will be, uh, again, at the more severe end of the spectrum for that chromosomal abnormality. Um. Thank you both. That's great. Thank you. Sorry, Jerry, you're muted. Thank you, Claire. Uh, and thank you, Carolyn and John, for both your written presentation and your contribution and evidence here this morning to committee. That has been very, very useful. And I wish, want to wish you all the very best in your important work um, and, and to uh, thank you for attending and giving us your evidence today. So thank you, panel. Thank you. Okay, members. Um, I'm going to go now uh, just to double check with Clark. Do we have the next? Yes, we do have the next panel, I think, ready to go, members. So I'm going to propose that we move straight into that, given the time pressures this morning. So this is item six, a, a, another evidence session in relation to the severe fetal impairment abortion amendment bill. And this briefing is from the Presbyterian Church in Ireland, Christian Action Research and Education, Both Lives Matter, and the Evangelical Alliance NA. So this is a further evidence session, and I refer members to the written submissions received at six, tab 6.1 to 6.4 of your pack. Representatives from a number of organizations are here today to give evidence on the bill. Um, and I would like to um, thank members for continuing to um, conduct this, these evidence sessions in, in a way that is uh, compassionate and considerate of the, the significant issues that, that, are, that we are dealing with in relation to this bill. So I would now like to welcome Miss Karen Jardine, who's Public Affairs Officer with the Presbyterian Church in Ireland. Good morning, Karen. Can you hear me okay? Good morning, Colin. Yes, I can indeed. Thanks very much, Chair. Good morning. And we are joined then by two current representatives, the first of which is Miss Grace Cahoon. Can you hear us okay, Grace? Yes, I can hear you, yep. Thank you. Your your volume's a little bit low there, Grace, but hopefully we'll get you okay. Uh, we're also joined by Mr. Stephen Lowry. Uh, Stephen, can you hear us? Can you hear I can us hear okay, you. Stephen? Yes, thank you. Thank, thank you. Okay, then we are also joined by Miss Sarah Pike, who is the Early Human Life Policy Officer with Cure and I. Can you hear us, Sarah? Yes, thank you. I can hear you. Thank you. Miss Dawn McAvoy, who is co-founder of Both Lives Matter. Um, can you hear us, Dawn? Thank you. And Mr. David Smith, who is head of Evangelical Alliance here in the north. So listen, I very sincerely want to welcome all of you to our committee meeting here this morning. Um, it is clearly a large panel, and that will provide its own challenges in terms of in terms of how we manage the session but um we we'll we'll do our best and we'll try to get um 
that that conducted with the technological um, limitations that we have. So I'm going to go back then to yourself, Karen, and could I ask for some very short initial remarks, if you could advise how those will be done, and then we'll go to questions and answers from members. So we'll go back to you, Karen. Thank you, Chair, and um, thank you for the opportunity to speak with the committee um, this morning. Um, I will speak briefly and then hand over to David Smith and then to um, Stephen and Grace. So that'll be the, the presentation, but hopefully then Sarah and Dawn can be brought in during the, the question times. And um, just as we start, I just want to acknowledge the um, professionalism and the compassion of the previous witnesses that have been before um, the committee this morning on this very, um, very complex subject that um, does, as the chair has said, require um, compassion um, from us all. Um, one of the things I suppose is that the committee is doing its work this morning. Um, we really appreciate our locally elected representatives um, taking the time to hear a range of views on, on local legislation and we want to thank you for doing this work which is difficult at times. Um, in relation to the bill before us this morning, um, I suppose it's recognising that it removes the principle from law that prospective disability is a reason to terminate any at any gestational limit and recognising that law shapes culture. So a lot of the evidence that we've heard this morning already um, reflects the culture that exists in Northern Ireland today. And I suppose what um, some of the things that we would like to talk about is how that culture might change, um, say, over the next 10 or 20 years um, in terms of what we see what's happening elsewhere um, in the UK. So um, perhaps if I hand over to, to David and he can um, just make some brief remarks. Thank, Thank you. you, Karen. Go ahead, David, please. Thank you, Karen. Sorry, David, just before you start, David, David, just before you start, sorry, and it's particularly important given the size of the panel we have, um, if I could ask everyone who's not speaking to please try to ensure that you're on mute um, during that time. It's also uh, hugely beneficial if people can use headsets. I realise not everyone might have access to one, but if, if people have headsets, that helps with the sound. So uh, just just to make those few remarks. So sorry, David, carry on. No, no problem. Thank you so much. Good morning, um, Canary. Um, just want to acknowledge at the start that nobody stands nowhere, that there's no neutral opinions here. We all come with our beliefs and our values, um, be they socialist or capitalist or whatever that may be. But I believe that everyone present this morning on these screens is concerned with justice, equality, compassion, freedom, but we might um, define those quite differently and we might even be offended by each other's definition of justice or compassion. And so the question for you as a committee, uh, this is definitely a medical question, it's a legal question, but there are questions that medicine and law cannot answer alone. Deeper questions of what it means to be a human being. And we represent uh, maybe religious beliefs this morning, but also um, it's not just beliefs. It's about how we shape those into actions by those whom we represent into practical actions of care and support and solidarity and walking with people in difficult situations. Just want to make the point that it's entirely legitimate and proportionate to advocate for the protection of both lives in legislation. Under UN Convention and EU law, there's no absolute right to abortion. And admittedly, there's no absolute right to life. And so a wide margin of appreciation is given to member states to decide their laws 
on this area based on cultural values. That comes from the case Vaux versus France. The laws brought into Northern Ireland in 2019 and the regulations of 2020 were of a maximalist nature, basically transplanting the CEDAW agreement into local legislation. But many more countries take a more minimalist approach. And it is entirely legitimate and proportionate that a legislature with devolved responsibility for abortion could decide to acknowledge and protect both women and unborn children in these circumstances to some degree. In the UK Supreme Court uh, judgment of 2018, Lord Mance said, in principle, a disabled child should be treated as having exactly the same worth in human terms as a non-disabled child. This is also the consistent theme of the United Nations Committee on the Rights of the Persons with Disabilities, expressing concerns about the stigmatizing of persons with disabilities as living a life of less value than others and about determination of pregnancy at any stage on the basis of fetal abnormality and recommending states to amend their laws accordingly. Both law and medical care across the UK and these islands already acknowledge the continuity of care pre and post birth. That's why if a child in the womb suffers uh, medical negligence or malpractice, they have until three years after their 21st birthday to bring legal proceedings. The adult is legally recognized as one and the same person as the baby who was in the womb. That brings me to that final point. My final point, I, I am someone with a cleft lip and palate, and I was interested to listen to the previous discussions. And I note the committee's concern and the clinician's concern that there is a perception out there that abortions are happening solely on the basis of a cleft lip and palate or club foot. Now, my understanding from the data is that that has happened in the past. In 2003, a legal case was brought specifically about that by Joanna Jepson. And so I would be encouraged if the committee today would state um, their support for a bill like uh, was brought in, uh, brought to the UK Parliament last year, which would specifically stop or prohibit abortion based on those grounds. So that there is no confusion out there. I think it'd be really helpful for the public um, to know that. At this point, I'm going to hand over to Grace. Thank you so much. Thank you, David. And uh, thank you, Grace. And go ahead, please. Thank you for the opportunity to speak today. Um, I'm a mother of two to James, who is six, and Harry, who is 18 months and has Down syndrome. It was a shock when we heard that Harry had Down syndrome after a relatively straightforward pregnancy. Harry was in hospital for a period of time following his birth, and during this time, we tried to get our heads around this news. How would we share this with friends and family? How would everyone react? How would we tell his brother? Thankfully, immediately after Harry's birth, we were surrounded by positivity and encouragement, and we continue to be. We do worry about the future at times, but what parent doesn't? We have a happy, strong, determined little boy who is adored by his brother, who just sees him as Harry, or in his words, his best brother. Down syndrome does not define who Harry is and what he will become. At 18 months, he's already striving to achieve and amazes us every day with how much he's learning and developing. I'm proud to sit here today representing many of the other amazing children and families we've met on our journey so far, many who would echo the, the thoughts I'm sharing today. I know from personal experiences I've heard that not all women who have had prenatal or postnatal diagnosis of Down syndrome for their baby have had the positive response from medical professionals that we've thankfully experienced, particularly those in England. 
I'm concerned that this law will reinforce discrimination against Down syndrome here in Northern Ireland and that our culture will begin to change. When a parent is told there's a possibility of a diagnosis of a disability such as Down syndrome, they should not lose any rights as a result. This is about equality. We live in a society that constantly talks about equality and inclusivity, yet here we are taking away the rights of a baby like Harry before he or she is even born. My older son would be protected after 24 weeks. My youngest could have been terminated right up to birth. Why? Do we want to live in a country where Down syndrome and other disabilities are seen with such negativity and fear? How would a change in this law impact adults and children with a disability? It would make them feel equal and help them know their lives are valued. Thank you. And I'll now hand over to Stephen. Thank you, Grace. And thank you, Stephen. Go ahead, please. Hi, everybody. Uh, good morning. Um, can you hear me okay? Yeah. You can hear me? Yeah. Yeah, we're hearing you fine, Stephen. Okay. Go ahead. Thank you. Well, yeah, good morning. Uh, let, let me let me say thanks as well to the committee for, for, for the opportunity to speak. Um, I've been asked just to share uh, some lived experience as, as a parent of a child with, with, with disability. My wife and I, uh, we found ourselves thrust into the world of disability when we became parents to our, our daughter, Rose. Rose was born with severe mental uh, and physical disabilities. We didn't plan it. Uh, we didn't choose it, and uh, I noticed that the term bereavement has been used already this morning. And I guess in, in hindsight, that's fairly true. We, we, we entered into a, a grieving process, um, perhaps for the child we didn't have. Um, perhaps we grieved over the life that we could no longer live, and maybe we grieved the perfect child and the perfect life. And, and maybe grieve is, is a fair enough term because it's painful to learn suddenly um, a lesson that usually requires time, uh, a lesson that we all will learn that, that the perfect life and the perfect child uh, are fallacies and that in life there are no peaks without valleys. If there was one thing that I want to express this morning uh, to the committee, it would be that um, what is often seen as a tragedy is is not. Um, we, we, we think it is because uh, disability cuts across the grain of of our hopes for perfection. Disability can be seen as a as an intruder into how we expect our lives should be, or 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 how we want our, our lives to be. But in being asked to share my experience this morning, my honest experience is as far from a tragedy as can be. Um, my experience is not a tragedy; it's it, it's more of a love story. Um, being a, a special needs parent has has brought me into a world of emotions previously unknown. Grace has just said that all, all parents have worry, but there, there, there is a worry that's unique to, to special needs. And, and I would go so far as to say an angst, even, and it would be disingenuous to deny that. Um, but there is also a tremendous joy in, in my world of special needs. And it would be equally as disingenuous to, to deny that. Now that joy is in the same cup as the angst and it's a cocktail. Uh, and, and I have to drink, drink them both. But, um, this joy that, that I want to, to talk about, I encounter this joy. I encounter it in myself. Uh, I, I see it in my wife. I see it in other, in other special needs parents and caregivers. 
in Rose's school, it's evident. And it's a joy that I think is rooted in the act of, of caring. It's a joy that comes from the act of kindness, even an exercised offering of kindness over a lifetime. It's a joy, I believe, comes from a focused life of caring for the vulnerable, of giving dignity to the very least. And I have found a profound sense of meaning and life, life purpose in those things through, through disability. I, I can fully understand why a diagnosis of disability is, is seen as a tragic and a, a term used already this morning was the unthinkable. And I can see the difficulty in asking people to accept something they don't want. But my experience is one of a very welcome tragedy, a very welcome disruption to a perfect life. My experience is a, is a sorrowful joy. And my story is, is, is not a tragedy, but it's a love story. Thanks for listening. Yep, thank you. Um, thank you, Stephen. And so I'm going to go now then to members' questions. I suppose, I suppose first of all, um, myself in terms of, of uh, a question, and I suppose in terms of clarification as well, I would just like to say that I know um, I certainly referred to bereavement, and I was talking when I was saying bereavement, I mean actual bereavement, either <coughs> post-birth, or pre-birth, I'm not. I'm not for a second suggesting that anyone would uh, see a diagnosis of disability in itself as a cause. And I agree with you, Stephen, on that. I know very, very many people with uh, with with disabilities. Many of whom are, in fact, I work with on the all-party group on disability. Are some of the best advocates and activists themselves, and some of the most able people. So, by no means, I think I think it's very often our society that. The, that disabled people rather than people themselves in terms of the supports and accessibility and, and all of those issues. So, um, and I, I know people and, and have people within my own family with, with circle who, with Down syndrome, who are some of the most greatest and fun and able and lovable and thoroughly enjoy life people. So I don't, I don't, uh, I don't have any issue with that. I suppose, I suppose one of the, uh, one of the key things I would like to explore is, in terms of the, you know, the panel's experience in terms of support and what support has been made available to allow people to continue with with pregnancies which are going to present particular issues or you know that, that additional support may be needed and we have heard in the earlier session about uh, a lack of support at times in terms of psychological support but are there other areas of support that you would like to flag up or indicate as a potential uh, as a potential positive or that where there have been negative experiences as a result of services not existing. So, um, Karen, can you, Karen, can you generally sort of field the questions to whoever you feel most appropriate? Because I think we want to be clear that we get a substantive answer and only additional if it's, if it's something additional, because we just don't have time to ground everybody on each answer, unfortunately. Absolutely, um, Chair. And um, I suppose if I make one brief comment and then perhaps hand over to, to Dawn maybe to kind of reflect um, on that. Um, from PCI's perspective, Presbyterian Church, we have um, consistently called for better support and care around perinatal hospice care and um, 
some of the services that were described earlier, even that link between the hospice and the hospital and um, the support for psychological support for, for families, for mothers. Um, we're fully supportive of um, finding the extra resource and funding for that. And I suppose that would maybe be a question about where is best to invest our time and our resources. But I'll ask Dawn to come in on that. Thank you, Karen. And um, if I can just repeat what's already been said, thank you for the opportunity to be here today. Um, it is a, a privilege. Um, as Both Lives Matter, we uh, campaign broadly on the issue of abortion. Speaking specifically to this bill, our concern actually was to take a back seat and we wanted to support the disability campaigners who were taking the lead on this campaign. There's obviously a connection to abortion um, and the discriminatory aspect of abortion precisely because of disabilities being singled out differently than um, able-bodied babies uh, have the legislation under law or have legislation um, in law. From our perspective, hearing their voices, as I said, was of primary importance, those living with disabilities and their parents. And if I can just um, add to what Grace and Stephen have so powerfully shared, we have a number of stories on our website, women who'd received a fetal diagnosis um, and were um, similarly um, concerned. They face pressures to terminate. Um, I'm very aware of the previous um, medical contributions and this is not about um, judging particular individual medics and certainly within the context of Northern Ireland we recognise there's wonderful care that is offered but we have to listen to the stories of women who are reiterating that they felt pressure to terminate when they faced a diagnosis and I have three stories sitting in front of me today that speak exactly into that. The assumption within the medical profession that they should terminate. None of these three stories are, um, one is for Down syndrome, the other two are not. Um, in the first case of a Down syndrome diagnosis, there was surgery required post-birth. The parents were asked if they wanted to have surgery when they said, that they did, of course, because he's our little boy. The consultant said, he may be your little boy now, but one day he's going to grow up to be a great big monster. Story two, which was of a significant neurological condition. These are two university professors and part of their story is them talking about the power dynamic that they faced and the pressure that they faced for four months to terminate a baby that they had said they didn't want to terminate. They were told by the medical professionals it's morally unethical to bring a child into the world who is going to have so many needs and won't have anything to contribute. Um, their little daughter lived for five years, but the distress of those conversations continues to live with them. And they feel that it's really important to get that story into the public square. The third story um, is of a genetic condition and it was not picked up pre-birth, but post-birth. But the consultant that was working with the family when they were talking about future pregnancies said to the family, the risk is one in four for a similar condition. But don't worry, we can test it. And if it has it, we'll get rid of it for you. Now, I'm not suggesting that every medic responds in such a way to a diagnosis of disability, but it does speak into the assumption that can be 
to terminate, that termination is the moral or the best option. And from the perspective of the families that we've talked to, very often there is no other alternative talked about or it is simply terminate or go away and deal with it on your own. There is very much a need for more support. There's a need for personalised pathways of care. There's a need for appropriate language to be used for parent-centred information, not scary medical language. We do know, as has been talked about, that out of the pregnancies that um, were termination, were a, a fetal diagnosis of Down syndrome, for example, is um, received, 90% of those parents do choose to terminate in GB. But we know looking elsewhere around the world where comfort care and good support um, services are on offer, up to 90% of parents choose not to terminate. So that speaks into the very real need for better support and care pathways. And if we do think just finally exclusively about Down syndrome for a minute, within the UK, there is a problem with termination for Down syndrome outweighing the continuing of the pregnancy because of the lack of alternative supports. We know that £16 per person is given in the UK for Down syndrome. Of that figure, £11 out of the 16 is spent on screening with only £5 spent on research. So the vast majority of the funding goes towards screening. And then we already know, as has been said, the vast majority who find out they have a diagnosis of Down syndrome pre-birth will choose to terminate. Our concern is that that eugenic culture does not come into Northern Ireland. We don't have a culture where disability has ever been um possible to discriminate pre-birth. As Lord Shinkwin said before the law, the law changed, Northern Ireland at that point in time was the safest place within these islands to be diagnosed with a disability pre-birth. As much as we do and have taken on board what the previous contributors have said, there is a problem with eugenics within medicine within the UK and that cannot be allowed to come into Northern Ireland. Thank you. Thank you, Don. Um, so I'm going then to Jonathan Buckley, and then I have Carol Nichillen. So go ahead, Jonathan, please. Thank you, Chair, and can I, can I thank the panel for their um, presentations thus far, uh, some very emotive stories. Uh, I, I too share uh, that approach that David had outlined about that road of justice and compassion uh, in relation to this issue. And I suppose probably what I would like to ask to, to, to Dawn and to Sarah to begin with, uh, why do you believe this bill is needed? What difference do you think the bill will make to the families of those living with disabilities in Northern Ireland? And how do you think this bill will help pregnant women? So I'll start with Sarah, if you, if you don't mind. Hi, thank you so much for inviting us to speak. I'm sorry that my more local colleague to you, Rebecca, was not able to make it. I think I would say in terms of the need for this bill, I'm really aware reading through some of the submissions that practitioners have said they don't recognise the stories coming from women in England about the pressure they felt to terminate. I'm really glad about that. But as um, Karen has already said, we know that law does shape culture and we are aware in England and Wales that a number of women face really difficult situations. There's um, the BBC reported on um, a woman, Emma Meller, who faced a situation where she was 
asked at 38 weeks by her doctors, she said they made it really, really clear that if I changed my mind on the morning of the induction to let them know because it wasn't too late. Um, and we also, there's an excellent report that's been produced by a number of Down syndrome charities that they did some research on the experiences of women in England and Wales. And they said for 69% of women who received a positive diagnostic test result for Down syndrome, they were offered a termination when the result was given. And that that speaks to a culture. Um, and regardless of how non-directively that that is offered, for some of those women, that's that's really distressing. That's not the conversations they want to be having on their antenatal journey. So I think for those women, these this bill is really important. And we we don't want to be in a situation where women in Northern Ireland are facing those same distressing conversations during their pregnancy. And if I could just then add to that, Jonathan, um, thank you. A friend of mine who lives with um, uh, quite severe physical disabilities, um, we were talking about the bill. And when I first um, mentioned it, his immediate response was, would that law apply to me? And it's those voices, that's why it matters. It's how it's received um, by people who are living with disability when they realize, for example, another family I know, they have three children, two have disabilities, one doesn't. Um, and the mummy has also got um, disability that would be classed as severe. So from her perspective, two of her children aren't protected in law in the way that the other one is. So it's in that way that this law matters. It sends a very clear signal um, that disability discrimination pre-birth is not permitted. And of course, we know that um, disability discrimination pre-birth is connected to post-birth. It's the fear of what the lived life will look like or what it won't be able to look like. It's as one of those stories was that child won't have the born child won't have anything to contribute and it's a really dangerous path to go down when we measure someone's worth in how they're um, able to contribute um, how do we measure that is it a financial contribution we know that um, for example again with down syndrome um, I have three able-bodied um, daughters uh, I would wish that they reported similar feelings of happiness and joy and satisfaction with their lives and how they look as to how we know that Down syndrome uh, people respond when they're asked. 99% of people with Down syndrome indicate that they're happy. 97% like who they are. 96% like how they look. How do we determine whether life is worth living? How do we determine suffering? How do we determine pain? And unfortunately, legislation that permits abortion for disability sends a signal that those lives being lived aren't worthy in the same way that able-bodied lives. And that's why this law matters. Okay, thank you. And um, I think many of you would agree, I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but from what I've heard from the presentations, that the your overwhelming thought is that the culture that exists among medical professions is that for 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 most is pushing down the avenue of, of termination as as the only the only option. Um, can, can I ask 
in that in that regard, obviously we have had presentations from uh, pediatricians uh, and just before you is actually the Royal College of Occupation and, and Gynecologists, uh, who who would say that that is not the culture uh, at all. That there 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 is a, a choice that is offered to to women, but that doesn't. And in even relation right up to birth, I think it was. Um, sorry, sir, you had mentioned about the, the particular case right up to induction. What, what What's your response to the medical professions that tell us that this just does not happen? Um, Jonathan, again, if I can just um, start, I suppose um, there's, a, there's a culture in Northern Ireland that has been shaped by the laws and how um, our culture has dealt with um, these circumstances up until this point, but what the, the CEDAW report and the legislation that came in in 2020 um, does is just change that culture completely. And um, we're maybe not talking about what might happen tomorrow or next week or next month, but we're talking about 10, 20 years down the line and about establishing a set of norms where abortion is seen as maybe the first port of call rather than the last resort. And I think how the medics were talking this morning was about um, the case of, case of last um, resort, but maybe I'll bring Grace in um, to reflect on that, and maybe Sarah might have some comments as well. Yes, yeah, I go think, ahead, Grace. All right. Um, I think just with our, our kind of entrance into the world of Down syndrome in the last year and a half has probably opened my eyes to this more. Um, women um, through various kind of support groups that I would be in sharing their experience um, of being asked repeatedly at appointments when they've been told um, termination is not something they're considering, being put under pressure. A personal friend who was put under so much pressure she didn't have any more scans with her first child and didn't have any scans with her second and third child. Um, so that that's the reality for women, particularly in England, um, where abortion has been available. Um, and I guess my fear as a parent with a child with Down syndrome is that this would become our culture in Northern Ireland. It's maybe not happening as much here, but I am aware of girls who have not had positive responses when they've had a diagnosis of Down syndrome. Information that's been given has been outdated. Um, one family I know who have a child um, with a disability were told that she would never walk, never talk. This is when mommy was pregnant, when Emotions are already running high. She would never walk, she would never talk, and she would never call her mommy, mommy, um, which is a horrendous thing to say to somebody during pregnancy. But that little girl has gone on to walk and talk and do amazing things. So um, while in Northern Ireland it might not be happening just as much as it is in England or in Scotland, um, as our situation changes, and as Karen says, looking forward into 10 or 20 years down the road, it would be a terrible thing. Um, you know, Lord Shinkwin, as we've talked about, said that Northern Ireland was one of the safest places for an unborn baby and we would hate it to turn into somewhere that isn't safe um but it is happening here um and it, it will probably happen more i feel if if um this bill isn't put in place and um, it would be a sad sad situation for um children coming into the world with disabilities to be seen differently and those parents to be maybe anxieties to be placed in their minds during pregnancy that weren't previously there and um, by medical professionals so um, my concern as a parent is that, as Karen says, the culture would start to change as time moves on. Can I just respond? Thank you, Thank you Grace. And Sarah? Sorry. Briefly, Jonathan, please. Yeah, from Grace, from your, from your perspective, what would you say then to, to those that would say that it's okay on, on one, one side advocating for... Um, 
for a pro-life position. But in relation to disabilities, that the support services um, a- after that that birth are simply not there. Uh, what, what's your view on that? Yeah, well, I mean, from from my perspective, I suppose we we entered into this world during COVID, <laughs> um, so mm-hmm. it was different maybe experience. But I mean, we we definitely have a team of professionals who are very involved with Harry and um, very supportive of his development and support for us. There's a lot more happening out there, I feel now, than maybe there has been in years gone by, specifically. Um, in relation to Down syndrome, there's a lot of um, support groups available there, very active support groups here in Belfast, um, and support is there. Yes, probably um, there could be more, um, but I think if we go down this road and, and take this journey um, into um, encouraging people in a positive way, um, you know, to, to not consider abortion and to continue with pregnancies and the support will be there, then as an executive and as a country and as people like ourselves who are parents, you know, we need to, to look at that and maybe look at the ways we can support um, families more. But there definitely are supports there. Um, but it's definitely something I think as, as a country moving forward, um, we could be probably putting more into um, and, and given more time and more attention and immediate care after hospital and, and during that diagnosis period. I mean, we had excellent care, um, I have to say, for, for our child. We had unbelievable care um, in the hospital, um, psychologically supportive for our family and um, practically then afterwards for Harry. But it's definitely something that needs looked at and, and definitely more could be going into it here, yeah. Thank you, Grace. And Sarah, were you looking to come in on Jonathan's previous point? Yeah, I mean, in terms of the comment about saying that this just doesn't happen, I think, again, I would point back to the research. We know that studies have been done that found that of women who received a high chance screening result for Down syndrome, 50% were offered terminations, despite having already said that they don't want one. And I don't want this to be I don't want this to be an attack on clinicians. It's really not. I think clinicians are in a really difficult position because if their role is to support women to make informed choices and one of the choices that is legal in these cases is termination right up to, um, right up to term, then in a sense it's their role to, to let women know that that is an option. But yet that is really distressing for many of these women who, who don't want to be thinking about termination during their pregnancies particularly not in late stages they they do find that really upsetting and I'd also point to so I think you have don't screen us out a representative from don't screen us out coming later do you know they've got uh they have an open letter that's been signed by more than 1,500 people with down syndrome and their family who are expressing concerns about the law as it currently stands and who are speaking in support of this bill so there's a significant number of people who are really concerned about the impact of this bill and we also know that so you some of you might be aware there was a storyline in Emmerdale about parents choosing to terminate a pregnancy in it where there was a a high chance screening result for down syndrome and actually that kind of storyline is it's really upsetting for children and adults with down syndrome in their family but because that is is legal in a sense that's a legitimate storyline but it but it is really upsetting so I think those are the kinds of things that this bill will be really important to stop happening. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Jordan. you, Sarah. Okay. Thank you. Um, thank you, Jonathan. No, just I, do, I don't know if there is any members indicating. I, I would yeah, ask. So them, but if you, 
coming at the end. There is. I have an indication from. I have an, I have an indication from Carol and Kellen. So go ahead, Carol, please. For your testimony and indeed your written uh, uh, testimony to the committee as well. Um, some of you have alluded to listening to the previous contributors from the Royal College. Um, and indeed, some have acknowledged the fact that a lot of the experiences of women who felt almost coerced into making a decision or considering a decision about termination um, was more uh, prevalent in England and Wales, but local women felt that that was the case for some of them here. Uh, my concern in that is that even just listening to the two clinicians this morning, it's quite obvious to me um, that they are trying to give as much support to women regardless what decision they're making. Um, and I just want your views on that. Um, and then the other aspect is that in relation to, um, you know, if the bill doesn't go through, what what do you feel the difference would make to the um, the campaign that you have? So thank you. Um, thank you, Carol. Again, if I um, start, thank you for your your question, taking time to to listen to us today. I think um, one of the comments that was made um, by your previous contributors was that um, many um, many women and their families, when they're well informed, that they um, choose to continue on with a, a pregnancy that um, either may result in um, a baby maybe not living very long once it's born or and I think maybe some of the focus was maybe around some of those very difficult cases rather than some of the other um, cases that maybe we are we are talking about um, today. Um, but I think um, it's the the cultural shift and the potential for change over the next 10, 20, 30 years that we um, that we are concerned about. But maybe if I bring in David to um, speak into this. Thank you. Yeah, go, go ahead, David. Great. I think one of the concerns we would have is that what many of us would see is, is literal dehumanisation. It doesn't do anything to address the structural inequalities and injustices that young people growing up in the world with disabilities will, will face. It doesn't alleviate poverty. It doesn't tackle the core the, the core roots of many, many of the problems. Um, I think Karen's Carol's question was very helpful about the campaign. Regardless of this legislation passes, we do want to see much better support services for um, women and their families, for people growing uh, up with, with disabilities. Um, and I, I think it's maybe just important as well to name um, that, that there are, as we said, different worldviews. There are different end goals sometimes as, as well. So sometimes there's the accusation that people only care about this because actually they care about abortion and ending abortion. Uh, it's no no secret that we would like to see um, further changes to the law. We think we don't think it strikes the right balance in protecting both lives as far as it could. But the churches um, that we represent and, and many others and, and Grace and Stephen's testimony today show that they're, they're, it's not just a belief that we abstractly threw out there. We are working on the ground to support families with disabilities. Now, there's a long way to go with that, but we want to 
And um, this is not a ruse. We want to be up clear about uh, upfront about both both aims. I think it's also important that uh, maybe some of those who are campaigning against this bill are clear that they um, want to see abortion in any and every circumstance um, up up to term. Um, because I, I think it was again helpful to point out that um, abortions for cleft lip and palate, for instance, would not be supported. Um, but clarity around some of that, I think, is helpful rather than the sloganeering that we sometimes fall fall into. But just to reiterate that point, I think we do have concerns about long-term culture change and that offering abortion for disability doesn't actually address many of the concerns um, of, of the structural and systemic issues that those living with disability um, are, are facing. Respite care, to name one at the minute, special educational needs education, um, let's cook along and on. Um, Chair, can I maybe bring in Stephen um, just to speak for a couple of minutes? Um, Stephen also has a role within PCI about um, the services that we provide for um, people with disabilities. Maybe Stephen could speak for um, just a couple of minutes briefly about that. Yeah, thanks, Karen. Um, yeah, I, I have a role within uh, PCI. I'm the convener of disability services. Um, found it quite interesting. I was in a, a meeting. Uh, we have a, a council for social witness uh, and I was given a report on my role there. And it, it just struck me that as we were, uh, as, as we were getting our thoughts together about arguing for, for, for the dignity of, of, of life and the dignity of, of people with disabilities, that it's not just talk. It's not just something that we say as, as theory or principle, but, um, the Presbyterian Church uh, owns and runs four um, residential uh, care homes for for adults with learning difficulties, uh, which can either be full time residency or or respite services, uh, and that that's that's fully funded and fully staffed by by PCI. So this is something we take seriously, and it's something that we um, it, it's it, it's something that matters to us to to that extent. Sorry, Chair, you're muted. Okay, thank you. Uh, thank you, Clark. So, Jonathan, you had indicated, I think, at the end there that you would have liked to come back in for another question if time allows. So I don't see any other indications at this point. So go ahead, Jonathan, with another question. And this is the final question, please. Thank you. Yes, no, look, I suppose, Chair, it's been a very helpful session. And I just wanted to maybe get a, a different perspective on this and I, I think is is Dawn still with us? No, she's not. Clark, no, can, you, can you advise if Dawn is still on the call? Yeah, she, oh, she was there and then she um, went off the call. We'll, we'll try and get her back on as soon as, as, soon as possible. Yeah. Right, that's okay. It, it was specific in relation to, to the both left matters and, and their campaigning towards us, but... Uh, no, that's an F. If she's not, that that's fine, sure. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Well, listen, I want to thank each and every member of the panel for taking time this morning to uh, come to the committee to contributing your evidence, both in terms of written evidence and your evidence here this morning, um, and to wish you all the very, very best in the time ahead, um, and that a uh, that a. Uh, the supports that, that are so badly uh, needed for, for everyone and, and some of the people on the call are in that same position themselves. And I think there is certainly uh, something that we all should 
be looking at uh, in the longer term in terms of how we can provide better support. I think that's that's clear and that has emerged uh, very clearly across this uh, these discussions. So thank you, panel, and all the very best. Good luck for the time ahead. Thank you. Thank you. Yep, thank you. Okay. Thank you. Okay, members, I am going to propose then that we. Well, I'll just I'll just allow the members of the uh, of the panel to to leave there. Okay, members, I think what we should do, given the time constraints of what we should do, is go to correspondence. We'll deal with correspondence, and then we will we will just I'll, I'll check with clerk. Then clerk, should we break at that point then for the plenary session, or would we have time to take the SRs, or how are the officials in terms of timing for the SR section? Um, Chair, we, we've let um, the, the next group of witnesses that don't screen a certain time syndrome know that um, it'll be after the plenary. We've also put an initial note out to officials on the SRs that it would be after plenary as well. Um, so uh, I think we're probably best covering correspondence and the rest of the items and then come back after yeah. for the, the, the evidence sessions. Okay, so members, then I propose that we will move to correspondence in light of that, what the clerk has briefed us there. Are members content that we do so? Yeah, thank you. So members, um, I would like to draw your attention to a number of items of correspondence. Item 10.3 is a written briefing from the department on the targeted response to the identification of the Delta variant in the Kilkeel area. So... Um, I know that the department have did provide um, a written briefing outlining the activity and the actions that were taken in Kilkeel. I have since welcomed that, and I think that is an appropriate response to, uh, and, and it's good to see the contact tracing and the testing uh, available to move into an area and to seek to isolate the, uh, the, the spread of the virus in that local area. However, there was no information in relation to what the department are doing in relation to the Delta variant more generally, how they're planning to um, ensure that the increased transmissibility and the reported increased hospitalization are going to be dealt with. And I'm, I'm acutely conscious that our hospitals continue as we speak to operate at over 100% on a daily basis. So there is really no capacity or room within the system for any increase in, in that respect. And I'm conscious of the impact that that disruption to hospital hospital services has caused to the waiting lists. So, would members be be uh, well? I'll take I'll take uh, comments from members and then see where I, I I think we should write and ask the department to provide a further briefing in terms of what this means in terms of their response and in terms of the advice that they're providing to the executive in dealing with COVID generally and the dangerous variant of concern which is Delta particularly. So, any other comments, members? Would members be content that we write to the department seeking further information on the uh, on the planning that's now in place? Yep, members are content. Thank you. Item 10.5 is a response from the RQAA to the committee's request for progress on the urology work programme. Do members have any comments in relation to that item, of course, Yeah, sure. Can Charles, I? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, I mean, we've consistently raised this. Um, I just think it's concerning. Um, I'm still not. I am. We are still waiting on the the 
details of when the neurology inquiry will start. Uh, but in relation to this, um, I think we need further clarification, if not the RQI to come back to the committee. Okay, would members be content with that proposal? Yeah, thank you. Um, item 10.11 there is from the Stroke Association seeking support for a motion in the Assembly on progress on stroke services. Um, could maybe suggest that members would look at that individually in terms of, of uh, that correspondence. Do members have any comments in relation to it or content to note? Note. Yeah, members content to note. Thank you. Yeah. Item 10.12 is a response from the Chief Executives of the Health and Social Care Trust to the committee's invitation to give evidence on the severe fetal impairment abortion amendment bill. Um, so I'll, I'll take comment from members, but I have to say uh, there has a number of issues have arisen throughout the course of our consideration on this already, including the provision of screening, additional support, which has come up strongly this morning, counselling from others and families and psychological support, safe zones. And I do believe it would be good to hear from the department and the trusts on these issues. There are clearly going, will be significant implications for trusts in relation to the bill we're discussing. So I think we do need to hear from trusts, but I wonder what uh, what yeah. members' thoughts are on that. Sure. Yeah, I agree. Yes, Karen, uh, go ahead. I agree, just given the issues that we've heard this morning, but even those we heard last week and previous um, uh, witness, from witnesses also, I think it's, I mean, the way in which the, like personally, I felt the way in which the trusts responded was a bit dismissive. Um, but I mean, you can get over that. I just think they have a substantive role in relation to this. And I think we would all look forward to hearing from them. Thank you, Carol. Paula? No, just very much concur with what Carol just said there. I think we have to hear from all sides in this um, in our deliberations. Thank you. Thank you. So members are content then that the clerk liaises with the Department on Trust to schedule that briefing. Yep. Thank you, members. Have members any comments or proposals on any of the other items of correspondence in the main pack there this morning, members? And if not, are members therefore content with the actions proposed on the main correspondence memo? Yep, thank you. The table pack then contains a number of further items, members, which I'd like to draw to your attention. At tab 10.17, there is a letter from the minister advising that the British government is laying a new SI in Westminster regarding the implementation of the EU medical device regulations. That SI will enable the North to continue to align with current policy here and in Britain. Um, that is something I think we are scheduled to have a briefing from Brexit, uh, on, on Brexit from Cathy Harrison and her team. So I wonder would members be content to note for now and and we can raise that SI because clearly medical devices are an issue that that uh, are, are of concern and uh, I think it, it would be useful to have to hear more from those people working on that before we we make any consideration on that would members be content with that or any other comments yeah thank you members tab 10.18 then is a paper from the department in relation to the cross-border reimbursement scheme. The paper outlines the eligibility criteria and the process. Um, do members have any comments or again, would members 
would, would members, um, I'm conscious that we will have, I think, Patricia Quinn Duffy in, in the Brexit briefing. There may be an opportunity maybe to add on an additional briefing to take uh, to take some to get some further information in relation to this item. Paula. Um, thank you, Chair. I, 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 we were all in the chamber on Tuesday when the Health Minister um, gave his um, the overview of the framework and I asked him specifically why a similar scheme would, was not being replicated for access um, for people in Northern Ireland. I don't see that there was a, an EU imperative that that's, um, those arrangements for cross-border healthcare access were in place, we're, we're no longer in, in, in the EU, unfortunately. I'm just wondering, I, I didn't think that the Health Minister's um, explanation for why it's not replicated here to try and ease the pressures, didn't think it was satisfactory, so I would like to find out um, why they're not looking at it as an option here in Northern Ireland. If, if the Health Committee are not wanting to take that forward, I'm happy to put that to the Minister directly, just as said, wasn't satisfied with his response in the Chamber this week. Yeah, yeah, and and the other the other element of that, I think I think the eligibility criteria is important because the upfront costs could be prohibitive for some people, and we need to be very aware that we don't create further inequalities. It's also it's also very very relevant that this scheme had applied throughout all of Europe, and I do know and I have assisted constituents to travel to Lithuania and Latvia and other countries, so. That element of the scheme, that wider element, has not been replaced. I think it would be useful to hear something on progress on that, and the Minister, I think, has indicated. So would members be content then, in light of all of that, that we schedule a short briefing on that matter as well? Yeah, members content, thank you. And do members have any other comments in relation to the table papers? No, thank you. So moving on then, members, to the forward work programme. Uh, I refer you to the tab 11.1 of your pack. Um, at next week's meeting, members, we will be starting deliberations on the Health and Social Care Bill, and that session will be a closed session, and it'll give us the opportunity to discuss the clauses of or and any possible amendments. So I'm just flagging that to members, really, that, th that next week we will be moving into the consideration stage and, and that opportunity to discuss those issues. But otherwise, are members content to note the forward work programme? Okay, thank you. Members are content to note. And any other business members? No. So members, we, we will we will suspend the meeting there and we will return then at one o'clock or ten minutes after the end of the plenary, whichever one of those two comes sooner, um, just in case the, the plenary runs slightly beyond. If the plenary runs beyond one, immediately ten minutes immediately following the end of the plenary, we'll resume in session. But hopefully we will be able to resume at one o'clock as planned and we pick up on the third briefing at that point. So thank you, members, and I'll see you again at one o'clock. Thank you. Sorry, Meetings. just to say, Chair, members yep. can just join with the same link. So the same meeting link will allow members to join the meeting again. So um, it was just to make that clear as well. Okay, thank you, Clerk. And maybe just send that around as an email for those members who may have dropped off just before you get a chance to, to give that message. No problem. Okay, thank you. So the meeting is now suspended. And, Clerk, could you confirm that we are now off broadcasting, please? Yes, Chair. If you just leave the, the meeting, that will take us off offline. Thank you. Thank you, Clerk. Thank you. Hi, Nicole. Hi. Hi, Clerk. So are we back in a court situation? Yes, Chair, we, we've got four members present, so we can go ahead with the, the evidence session, okay? Uh, we only require um, four okay. for, for quorum. Um, we don't need five until decisions are made, so 
um, we can go ahead with the evidence session. Okay, okay, so members, um, we're now moving on to item seven in terms of our consideration of the severe fatal impairment abortion amendment bill. We're receiving today a briefing from Down's Syndrome Research Foundation and Don't Screen Us Out. Uh, it's the third of today's briefings on this bill, and I can advise that representatives of the both organisations are present to give evidence today. I'd like to refer members to a copy of the written submissions from Down Syndrome Research Foundation at tab 8.1 of the pack, and to the written submission from Don't Screen Us Out at tab 8.2. I would also like to apologise to both Elizabeth and Lynn for the delay in the meeting. We, we were we were had to suspend today's meeting and return um, following the, the unscheduled plenary session of the Assembly. But um, so I, I appreciate your uh, coming back to us at this point, both of you. So I would now like to just welcome Dr. Elizabeth Corcoran, uh, who is Chair of Trustees in the Down Syndrome Research Foundation. Uh, can you hear me okay, Dr. Corcoran? I can, Chair. Thank you. And Miss Lynn Murray from Don't Screen Us Out. Can you hear me okay, Lynn? I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you there, Lynn, indeed. If I could just I to, I, advise all members and... Yeah, go ahead, Lynn. I was just going to say I had problems getting in on my laptop, so I'm on my phone, so I was just checking that you could hear me okay. Okay, we can hear you. It's a, lit, it's a little bit low in volume, so if you, just, okay. if you just speak as loudly as possible, Lynn, but we are hearing you okay. So listen, I just want to also advise all members of the panel and uh, members attending that it's better if people have access to a headset, it's usually better sound quality. And if people can uh, ensure that they're on mute when they're not contributing, that also helps greatly with the sound quality. So we are now resuming our, our meeting in live session. Uh, I welcome you both. And if I go back maybe to yourself, Dr. Corcoran, in terms of Maybe um, could each of you give us a, a, a brief five-minute presentation and then we go to members' questions, if that's okay. Yep. Thank right. You. So thank you for inviting me to speak here today, Mr. Chairman and Health Committee. Um, to give you some background, a dearth of research around Down syndrome has led to, led to a parent initiative to establish the Down Syndrome Research Foundation back in 1989 with an aim to improve the health outcomes for people with Down syndrome. So I speak to you today as the chair of the Down Syndrome Research Foundation. That's a role which I've held over well, well over 10 years. I haven't counted. Um, I'm also a doctor, a psychiatrist by background. So over the years, it's been a challenge for my charity to fund and establish research projects in the UK and indeed worldwide um, due to a prenatal screening program and high termination rates that have, most, uh, uh, that have mostly resulted um, in terminations of pregnancies. In fact, the recent research found that people with Down syndrome die 28 years before those who do not have the condition, accentuating the urgent need for more high-quality research, as many of these deaths in the learning disabled community are avoidable. And in fact, the leader report was just released. Um, survival rates for people with Down syndrome have indeed improved also, mainly thanks to better inclusion in mainstream society, freedom from institutions where they were dying at a young age, and opportunities um, that being in the community affords them in terms of general health care. However, even in the 1990s, people with Down syndrome were still not being offered health care that they needed, such as life-saving heart operations, 
but hard-fought victories have been achieved, and even babies with Down syndrome who require heart surgery can expect to be offered it and um, are successful over 90% of the time. Unfortunately, we know from a recent Freedom of Information request that only about five pounds per person with Down syndrome per year is spent um, on treatment and intervention studies. And um, in comparison, we know from um, uh, this Freedom of Information request that uh, between the uh, 2010 and 2018, NIHR and M MRC spent uh, 5.4 million on um, improving the screening program. And indeed, NHS spends over 30 million every year on antenatal screening. So um, hence, the 40,000 people living in, with Down syndrome in the UK still have to deal with um, something called diagnostic overshadowing and a lack of focused health screening and specialized treatment. The routine offer of screening has not led to any therapeutic benefits for the Down syndrome community, even um, down to even enhanced counseling or um, care pathways um, for expectant mothers. They do still largely do not exist. In maternity care, women's decisions are questioned repeatedly after it is found the baby has Down syndrome. Um, we were involved with the development of a publication of a report which confirms that many women are subject to subtle and not so subtle pressure to terminate their pregnancies. And this issue has been reiterated by RCOG um, as a part of a recent statement around the care of women who are offered screening. Whilst choice to terminate is based, based on disability may appear to be available to be helpful um, for women, disability abortion has a more worrying aspect to it as observed in a statement by the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. When they were being questioned by the UK Screening Committee on their decision not to provide the new NIPT test, they said, quote, if the decision has been made primarily on cost grounds, then a more rigorous economic analysis has to be made that includes the lifetime costs of caring for children and adults with Down syndrome. Um, in the years following the 1990 HFEA clause, which allowed abortion up to birth in the case of disability, there has been notable comment made on this matter. The Disability Rights Commission, now the Human Rights Commission, made it clear that a, this clause reinforces negative stereotypes of disability and is incompatible with valuing <clears throat> disability and non-disability equally. In 2017, the UN Committee for the Rights of the Persons with Dis Disabilities in the UK and uh, Great Britain and Northern Ireland recommended that abortion law be amended to stop the legalization of selective abortion on the grounds of fetal deficiency. Disability Rights UK charity also uh, made comment on this clause. Their CEO said, quote, fundamentally, it is about equality. Wherever Parliament sets the number of weeks after which an abortion is not permitted, it should be exactly the same whether the pregnancy is likely to result in a disabled or non-disabled child. All lives are equal, unquote. We are in full support of Paul Givens' severe fetal impairment abortion amendment bill, as this is a time in the UK where, as a society, we have come to understand that life with a disability is a good life, fulfilling life, and this, um, and this belief is reflected by the UK commitment to equality for everyone. All our laws should reflect that. Abortion law is no different in that respect. So we believe that Regulation 7 of the Abortion uh, Northern Ireland Number 2 Regulation 2020 C 
severe fetal impairment or fetal, uh, fatal fetal abnormality as laid down will perpetuate disability stereotypes. Our opinion has been drawn from the promoted standards around equality together with our experience as a charity for over 30 years um, in this field. We're concerned that there was no meaningful consultation with disability groups before Regulation 7 was laid down, where it may be made clear that the exclusion of a disability clause from the regulations would not be in conflict with women's rights. As new laws are laid down, there is an obligation to wrestle with the issues around equality and in the case of maternity issues, to ensure that we can support women who find themselves pregnant with a baby affected by Down syndrome without coercing them towards abortion, subtly or otherwise. The outcome in Great Britain has shown that the latter often takes place when around 85% of women terminate following a positive screening result. Research shows us that women and their families are happy with their lives, and although, the, um, although we know that with the right focus we can further improve the health outcomes for this group, we do strive, as we do strive so for other social groups, our charity strives to achieve that aim. Whilst we understand that there are many, many people of goodwill in the health services in the UK, the presence of a disability clause in our abortion law has become problematic, leading to the promotion of abortion for disability, the perpetuation of disability stereotypes and health inequalities for this group of people. And in, this, in a country that chooses to hold uh, equality so dear, um, we, should, uh, we should definitely address this. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Dr. Corcoran. And um, Lynn, would you like to go ahead and make some opening remarks, please? Sure. Um, <clears throat> well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, for allowing me to speak here again today, representing the Don't Screen Us Out campaign. I would just like to reiterate that our campaign represents people from a very broad section of society, for those individuals who give birth to babies as teenagers, to those who give birth well into their 40s. Consequently, our supporters hold a broad range of views on lots of issues, including things like abortion. However, many of us are united on the matter of disability discrimination. The United Nations Convention on the Rights, with, Rights of People with Disabilities has previously directed the UK to ensure that abortion law doesn't discriminate against disability, nor should abortion law perpetuate stereotypes. That's why we support Paul Given's severe fetal impairment bill to amend the abortion regulations 2020 to remove the ground for an abortion in case of severe fetal impairment. Women who are struggling with the idea of a future with a child with a condition such as Down syndrome deserve emotional support. What they tend to be faced with is the offer of an abortion which sends out the wrong signals about their future and a life with disability. Down syndrome isn't a tragedy, it's a revelation. To illustrate this, I would like to quote, and I think Liz maybe referred to this, the Royal College of Obs and Gynae um, recent statement about supporting women in screening. Uh, and I'll quote here what they said. They said, some parents whose babies have been identified as having a higher chance of Down syndrome, Edwards syndrome or Patau syndrome, and who have decided to continue with the pregnancy have reported being asked repeatedly if they want further diagnostic tests or an abortion. They report having their decisions challenged and being pressured into changing their minds. 
that's the end of the quote. We still have a cultural problem with attitudes towards people with conditions such as Down syndrome. A clause in abortion law which promotes dis disability abortion by its very existence perpetuates the disability stereotypes. It falls short of the standards of equality. Last month, Tommy Jessup, an actor who has Down syndrome, who recently appeared in the popular BBC drama, crime drama Line of Duty, publicly said, I want to see people with Down syndrome treated equally with others before and after they are born. We are the only group of people in the UK where people try to end our lives before we are born just because we have Down syndrome. This is not fair. It scars our lives. Shortly after Tommy's comment was published in the media, Richard Dawkins, an eminent scientist, talked on RTE about the morality of bringing a child with Down syndrome into the world. He uses the high rates of termination as supporting his uninformed views. Claiming the amount of suffering goes up when a child with Down syndrome is born, all this was plausible, plausible to him. He, of course, had no evidence and he claims that happiness would be increased if a woman had another child without Down syndrome or even one of the other congenital conditions, including unborn babies that are blind or deaf. The professor said it would be wise and sensible to abort when a baby is found to have a screened for condition. Well, what he said is shocking to many people who understand what a diverse society is. There are many on social media who defend his position. Indeed, the law as it stands in the UK serves his theory well, and I'm sure he's well aware of that. His confidence in making these remarks confirms that much. Last week, Brian Wilson, who was a member of Tony Blair's government until his retirement from politics in 2003, published an opinion piece about Heidi Crowder's efforts to change the law around disability abortion. And I'll quote him. Does the right to equality, and then in brackets, and this is not a general debate about abortion, prevail? Or is this the one form of prejudice that liberal society is willing to endorse? End of quote. The crux of the matter is that Down syndrome births in Europe have halved since the introduction of prenatal screening. As Tommy Jessup says, this is a problem for people living with Down syndrome. The Royal College of Obstetrics and Gynaecology is also acknowledging the issues that women are facing in pregnancy. We ask you to consider whether the clause around disability abortion is helping minority groups or if it chiefly serves to perpetuate a view that disability equals suffering. That's all I've got to say at the moment. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, Lynn. Um, and thank you both for, for that presentations, those presentations. Um, my first question would be to yourself, Elizabeth, around you had a reference there around the counselling and cure pathways, and you said those simply do not exist. What type of uh, counselling and cure pathways and the issue has been raised across a number of sessions, what type of counselling and care pathways would need to be in place to support people better? Um, so I just, I suppose I want to kind of maybe fill in some gaps because I was sitting in on that session. And, um, and I want to maybe, as a doctor, if a pathway doesn't exist, then, I, you know, doctors would struggle really, you know, to construct the right care package that a patient would need. Very early on, a care pathway around termination was created, and that supports doctors and their and the health professionals to to 
support these women when they make this choice, but to make a care pathway for women to continue. And, and we were involved in working with Positive About Down Syndrome and St. George's Hospital, which was mentioned this morning, to make a care pathway who, for women who um, have a high chance of carrying a baby with Down Syndrome. They, these um, pregnancies have higher rates of being um, affected by stillbirth. They require inc increased numbers of scans and psychological support should be provided to help the parents to adjust to this um, change in the maybe pregnancy that they weren't expecting. So, you know, high quality care for women who would like to continue would undoubtedly um, help parents to better adjust to the care. The research backs that up, better adjust and um, be ready to care for the child that they're going to have. Um, I'm sorry, I don't know if I've answered your question 100%. Uh, well, no, that, that's so, so even if you could outline for me some of the practical measures in terms of support as a, as a doctor that you think are lacking here and, and would need to be uh, looked at in terms of reinforcing the support network. Okay, so what we see is because um, a, as soon as a woman is identified to be carrying a, a child that may be affected um, by Down syndrome or another condition, um, straight away she... Um, she's sort of on off piste, right? She's not on this sort of conveyor belt that the, that the antenatal screening program creates, right? Where you, you go along like a good patient and have your blood tests and have your scans. Um, so, you know, that creates this sort of dissonance and this stress within, with, with the woman, not, um, not going along and, um, you know, often what we see is that these women are offered terminations in the same appointment or very soon after. Um, when they don't um, want to have a termination, they would like more information. That would be, you know, initially the first thing the person needs. Even before they enter the screening pathway, they need to understand the conditions that are being screened for so that they can make a, a clear, informed consent about this. Because um, a lot of times people may continue with the pregnancy anyway, but they don't realize when they're joining the screening pathway that they're going to potentially be reaching a sort of a decision point. Um, so first of all, the, you know, there needs to be improved um, dissemination of information around um, conditions like Down syndrome that needs to be up to date. Um, we've been working with the um, Fetal Anomaly Screening Program to try and improve their booklets and try and um, have the most information around Down syndrome, including things like, you know, they're likely to attend mainstream schools, they're likely to um, live independently with some support. Um, so first of all, improving information at that point at which women decide whether or not they want to go on the antenatal screening program. Um, down the road, if women um, choose to be screened and they're shown to be higher, higher chance, again, that information needs to be disseminated again. And we would say um, allowing people to have contact with organizations like Positive About Down Syndrome, where they can speak to a trained counselor um, who can help them to give get the most up-to-date experience about what life is like living with Down syndrome. So that's one of the things that I would set into contrast with some of the stories you heard this morning from the medical professionals is the, the, the one thing they don't talk about is what is it like to live? That's the social experience of having this this disability, right? They, doctors are very good. We memorize lists and we can reel them off. And that's what they do with these um, situations. And they 
they they are doing their duty. They're telling um, telling them the chances that the pa- that the the baby might have conditions um, affecting their heart, but they don't talk about this uh, research involving thousands of people with Down syndrome saying they're happy with their lives. I think that that's extremely important information, which is rarely um, handed to the woman when they're told their child has Down syndrome. It's it's it is handed to them as if it is a death sentence. So um, I would I would love to see the handing over of up to date information safeguarded within law as well. Um, I think the offer of counseling is really really important. Should the should the woman want to take that up? And indeed, as one of um, the people mentioned, the fathers as well. They're important support, and often the fathers are used. You know, what would your husband say if you continued this pregnancy? That often does come up. Um, as a reason to pressure pressurize women to terminate, um, I have to disagree with um, the evidence given this morning that that women are not being pressured. This is just simply not the stories we are hearing, and we trust women um, and the the stories that they're reporting to us. What we're seeing is um, what I like to to describe as medical gaslighting. Are you sure you want to continue? What would your family say? What would your children say? Do you really think you could cope with this pregnancy with this baby? Um, to me, at, at every appointment, it, you know, it, it's discrimination by proxy to the mother as far as I'm concerned. So, yeah, I think we need, you know, we need a care pathway that is um, approved by the royal colleges. It's improved um, and in, is set by NICE and other bodies as, as a kind of um, best practice so that we can hold that against um, bad practices that are going on and being reported to us as, as third sector organizations. Yeah, yeah, and I think the uh, I think some of the earlier uh, sessions did actually they, they were they were equally um, highlighting the fact that supports and and the the alter, you know that there aren't a full range of of supports in place. But anyway, um. So the the other thing and the, and the final thing that I would, would like to ask was in relation to we have heard in previous sessions the uh, the indication that there's a possibility that the twenty four week limit and the the screening issues and all of that could lead to people kind of a, a clock ticking that would force people into making decisions um, sooner or decisions without full information. What's your view of that issue? Um. I, you know, this isn't this this isn't the case that we see. Um, that um, we see that actually, it's more the case when people are given the diagnosis, they're offered termination just as a matter of course. This, you know, we're we're a few years ahead, right? Say if this, you know, you know, you guys can look and see what what potentially it could look like for you for you guys. Um, and what we see is that it's institutionalized, totally routinized, that when you receive a diagnosis of Down syndrome, the natural um, um, next step is to be offered a termination. And um, that has been backed up by the cha- uh, sharing the news report, which is available online for any of um, um, the listeners who want to look that up. Um, that was 1,600 women who have recently given birth. Um, and they reported that they were offered the termination straight away. Um, so in terms of a clicking, t- k- ticking clock, I, I think that, you know, I think women, you know, aren't given a cooling off period anyway, as it is in the UK. Um, I, you know, I think that often when women are given time to cool off, they decide after having time to read up to date information that they do want to continue this wanted pregnancy. Um, so, you know, to me, I just don't, I, 
I just don't see that that's an issue. Um, I think that these pregnancies are, um, that uh, pregnancies affected by Down syndrome are detected early enough. Um, so these conversations can happen in a timely manner. But I think that there needs to be cooling off periods and, and time to receive the most up-to-date information. Um, really, I see that's the biggest time issue. Okay. Okay, well, thank you, and thank you both for attending committee this afternoon, as it has turned out to be. Um, appreciate you coming along, appreciate the evidence that you have provided us with, both in written format and here this morning, um, and to wish you both all the very best in the time ahead, and to thank you for your appearance this morning, this afternoon. Thank you. Okay. Okay, members. Um, so I just need to check with the clerk. Do we have the officials online in relation to the SRs? Um, Chair, we've we've one official there for the for the next one. Um, we've been trying to get the other official, but um, we can see if um, they are able to brief. And uh, what's the situation in relation to, do we have time on these? And if we don't, do we need five members? And are we, can we take the briefing now, but, but then defer the decision back to uh, our next meeting? I think we, we certainly could. We've, we've got the, the members here to make a decision, Chair. We've got um, okay. we, we've, we've five members, six members um, in the call, so we can, um, take forward these. There, there is um, time on one of the SRs um, that we, we could reschedule, um, but one of them is with the extra sitting day today, um, sort of puts a wee bit of pressure on the timelines. Um, so I think we're best if we can to get those briefings, but we do have one official there and ready and we could maybe go ahead and see if we could take that briefing. Okay, yeah, go ahead. Um, go ahead with that. So, which which one is it? Is it a twenty twenty one one five one or yes, it's one five four one five one. So, it's one five one. Chair, okay. item eight. Okay. Okay, so members, we're moving on now to item eight. Uh, SR twenty twenty one forward slash one five one. Item 8 is the first of two SRs before the committee today. I refer members to the clerk's memo at tab 8.1 of the pack and to the SL5 and statutory rule at tabs 8.2 and 8.3. I can advise members and officials from the department are here to brief the committee on the provisions of the SR. So I'd now like to welcome Ms. Claire Hulbert, who is Tourism Liaison and Policy Branch within the Department of Economy. Claire, can you hear me okay? Uh, yes, I can. Thank you very much, Mr. Gildenu. Yes. Can you hear me? And I think it's just yourself at this. Yes. Um, yes, we're, we're hearing you there fine, Claire. Sorry. Uh, I was meant to be joined with my colleague, um, Mr. McGuigan, mm -hmm. but um, I think with the, with the changing in the times, um, I'll just be myself if that's okay. Yep, that's absolutely fine. So do you want to go ahead, Claire, and brief the committee, and then we can take a few questions? Thank you. Okay. Um, thank you for your invitation to attend today's meeting of the committee. Uh, my name is Claire Hulbert and I work in Tourism Branch. As the committee is aware, the Executive Office is responsible for the revised process which supports the pathway to recovery. This responsibility includes receiving and managing all proposals for change from executive departments, 
management of the decision-making process and facilitating consultation with departments on the drafting of amendment regulations if required. This work is supported by a cross-departmental working group, which meets weekly and is chaired by the director of the TEO COVID-19 task force team, with membership from all nine departments, key stakeholders, including local government and PSNI. I am a member of this group. In bringing forward the amendment, colleagues in the Department of Health sought the assistance of the Department for the Economy in providing the detail and support to enable the delivery of this amendment. Today, the committee is considering the statutory rule SR 2021 number 151, which is a sixth amendment to the Health Protection Coronavirus Restrictions Regulations of Northern Ireland 2021. If the Chair is content, I will begin by briefly outlining the context and content of the amendment to the regulation, and then we'll be happy to take any questions. The, 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 yeah, sorry, the content of the regulations we are discussing today was set at the executive meeting of the 20th of May, when a number of decisions announced on the 13th of May were reviewed and confirmed. SR 2021, number 130, of the Health Protection Coronavirus Restrictions Regulations, Northern Ireland 2021, Amendment Number 4, included inter alia provision for unlicensed and licensed premises to reopen doors with table service and other mitigations in place from the 24th of May 2021. Table service only was referenced in both the executive paper discussed on the 13th of May and the subsequent written ministerial statement, and in absence of a fear to the contrary, Officials were not in a position to take a more nuanced interpretation of the executive position within the making of the regulation. In preparing to reopen businesses and their representative bodies brought to TEO, in preparing to reopen, businesses and their representative bodies brought to TEO, DFE and civic representatives attention that their regulatory requirement for table service only did not align to their business models therefore adversely impacting upon the, the buffet and carvery service familiar in many hospitality outlets, and this generated operational and compliance challenges. It was noted during the lifting of regulations in the summer of 2020 that the legislative position resulted in unlicensed premises not having to operate table service, unlike their counterparts operating licensed premises. Businesses were required to ensure contact details, social distancing and other COVID measures were implemented. Tourism Northern Ireland produced guidance which supplemented executive guidance and they have recently updated and revised this guidance to ensure additional mitigations in respect of ventilation and face covering requirements were detailed to the sector. TEO and DFE have continued to engage with the hospitality, retail and fast food sectors, all of whom were impacted by this requirement. During the executive meeting of the 27th of May, TEO officials were asked to bring forward by way of urgent procedure a paper to address the issue of table service with proposals, including mitigations. TEO sought the support of the Department for Economy on this matter. This led to the Minister for the Economy writing to executive colleagues on the 20th of May, seeking reviews on a paper which detailed the issues. The DFE paper noted that any change to the regulation would be accompanied by revised guidance, which would detail one, Updated guidance for operators and fast food and operators within shared areas, which would be multi-outlets that are sitting in a shopping centre, motorway service areas and or cafes where food is selected at the counter before taking a seat. Number two, 
providers operating buffets and carveries. Number three, detail the requirement to minimise movement to access and egress the table at which they are seated, select food from a buffet, access toilet facilities, access a smoking area or leave the premises. And number four, there will be strictly no seating or service permitted at any bar. On the 3rd of June, the executive agreed to amend the regulations pertaining to the issues around buffet, carvery and counter-ordering through the removal of the table service requirement for cafes and coffee shops. Exemptions were added for restaurant buffets and carveries, taking account of the provision of alcohol in such settings. The amendments to the Health Protection Coronavirus Restriction Regulations, Northern Ireland 2021, Amendment Number 6, were made on the 4th of June 2021 at 12.30pm and laid before the Assembly at 2.20pm on the 4th of June. They came into operation with immediate effect. The changes resulted in the permission of food to be ordered other than at table in venues that do not serve alcohol and the permission of food to be ordered at a buffet or a carver. In communicating the changes to the businesses impacted, their trade bodies and enforcement authorities and DFA emphasised that it was imperative that while easing the requirements for businesses, the mandatory collection of all customer details as required by regulation and other, other measures was to be maintained. Queuing must be managed with social distancing, face coverings worn when not seated, as already required in the regulations, hand hygiene observed, enhanced hygiene and cleaning undertaken and staff safety measures also undertaken. The revision to the regulations applies to businesses previously required to deliver table service only in unlicensed restaurants, cafes and coffee shops, fast food and operators within shared areas, such as seating areas in a shopping centre and motorway service areas. Licensed premises will be required to continue to operate table service for food and drink with the exception of those operating buffets and or carveries. For carveries and buffets, customers will queue to be served, but food service should be by staff to avoid multiple customer contact with surface and serving utensils. Businesses will encouraged to remind customers to minimise movement to access and ingress the table at which they are seated, select food from a buffet, access toilet facilities, and or to access a smoking area or leave the premises. Customers need to be reminded to wear a face covering unless exempt at all other times other than when they are seated. No seating or service is permitted at a bar. In addition, the revised regulations and guidance prepared by TNI was detailed by way of internet hyperlinks online, and these have been detailed to stakeholders. I hope this is useful. And I hope this provides you with a summary of the context in which these two sets of amendment regulations were made and an outline of the content. Thank you for listening, and I'm happy to take any questions that members may have. Okay, thank you, Claire. I suppose really um, that, that, that does cover it fairly well. I suppose I'm just wondering, has there been any contact from the sectors at all in the aftermath of it in terms of how it's, how it's operating in practice? Or are there any further tweaks being considered to it? Um, um, have you said any feedback on that since? The, the feedback we've had, Mr. Gilney, has been positive. Um, the types of businesses that were adversely affected by this requirement, it was all, always their um, operating model prior to COVID that table service wasn't a requirement. So they've really just reverted to back 
back to that. But we've also ensured um, through we've with a wealth of guidance that's been produced by TNI and these sections were engaged in that to make sure that it's, these venues aren't only safe for um, visitors but for staff themselves because we've got to be concerned about the safety of all our staff. But very much um, this amendment and change has been welcomed because it was very much affecting you know, businesses that have already greatly suffered because of COVID were then going to be suffering even more. Okay, and then so that 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 addresses the sector. Is is there then any follow up? And this applies, I suppose, more generally. But um, just just I don't know in terms of your own information. Do you then follow up in terms of testing, like a targeted testing, to see if the measure is having a negative impact in terms of transmission, or does the does the contact? Do you link in with the whole test trace operation to see generally where you where you put in measures? Are those having an impact? In the case, from an economy point of view, um, that isn't something that I could answer at the minute, because um, all the, you know, um, the testing is the responsibility, as far as I'm aware of health. But it certainly is something the members of the committee would like that considered. It's something that I could certainly look into. Yeah, I think I think we just would have a general interest in tracking, you know, how how when when various measures are either brought in or relaxed, how it's being monitored in terms of the impact. Because I think there's huge learning within that yes. as we move forward. But listen, Claire, there's no other indications from members uh, for questions on that. So I think you have you've adapted that. So we can thank you for attending, okay. and we will consider our formal consideration now. But thank you for coming along to committee. Thanks. Thank you very much and thank you for your time. Thank you. Bye bye. Okay, members. Um, thank you. So, members, we now move on to our formal consideration of that SR. I can advise members that the SR is subject to the confirmatory resolution procedure and that the examiner of statutory rules has no comment to make. Have members any further issues they wish to raise in relation to this rule? Um, no, I'm not seeing any indications. So therefore, members, can I ask that we agree formally that the Committee for Health has considered SR 2021 forward slash 151, the Health Protection Coronavirus Restrictions Regulations 2021, Amendment Number 6, Regulations 2021, and recommends that it be confirmed by the Assembly. Are we agreed? Yeah, I think we're agreed. Yeah, that's okay, members. And I will then just check back with Clerk. Do we have official on the line on SR 2021-154, Clerk? We do indeed, Chair. Okay, so I'd now like to welcome Miss Deborah Sharp, who is International Travel Lead within the Department of Health. Deborah, can you hear me okay? Yes, I can, Chair. Thank you. Thank you, Deborah, and you're very welcome this afternoon to our committee. And thank you. And please go ahead and brief the committee on this ASR. Okay. Good afternoon, Chair and members, and thank you for the opportunity to come along to the committee and brief you on an SR relating to international travel um, that has been made since my last update to you all on the 27th of May. Deborah, just sorry, sorry for interrupting, Deborah. We're not seeing you at present. I'm not sure if your camera's on. We're hearing you clear enough, and that's fine if that's if that's all, but we're not seeing you at present. My camera is showing as being on, so it's not um 
it's not blocked out as it were so i don't know why you're not saying me okay well listen don't worry go ahead so long as you're aware that's okay go ahead david okay thanks um so the the sr that has been made um that i'm briefing committee on today is sr 2021 number 154 which came into operation on the 8th of june and these regulations as i've said amend the principal international travel regulations in northern ireland by adding afghanistan bahrain costa rica egypt sri lanka sudan and trinidad and tobago to the red list countries the regulations also removed portugal from the green list and um, ultimately moving it back to amber they also updated a technical reference to legislation relating to medical devices which is quoted within the context of uh, clinical investigations exemptions in schedule four and they also correct two typographical errors one relating to fixed penalty notices um, and the amount associated to uh, the offence for not taking a test post arrival and the second typographical area is in relation to an incorrect paragraph number referenced in schedule seven relating to managed hotel isolation so i'm happy to answer any questions committee may have Okay, well, I suppose my question is really in relation to the ongoing situation with the Delta virus in relation to this, uh, the, the travel. Are there uh, are there current, uh, can you advise any uh, update on what's happening at present in relation to protecting the community from this Delta variant? Um, yes, okay, so in, in terms of international travel, um, the, the post-arrival testing um, requirements that we have in, in the legislation um, which is day two and day eight for amber arrivals and day two for green. So part of that process, the rationale for that was to enable genome sequencing of testing so that should um, an international arrival come into Northern Ireland and receive a positive test uh, on arrival, then we would be able to sequence that test and determine which variant um, has been picked up. Um, and that then ascertains the prevalence of, of, of that variant within Northern Ireland. Okay. Um, and in general, in general, the, the international travel measures are reviewed on an ongoing basis. And you'll be aware of the Global Travel Task Force, the work that's ongoing to, to continually review these measures, establish if they continue to be um, proportionate um, and seek to um, you know, explore options in terms of if there are options to ease um, then what would that be balanced off against and also um, in terms of travel within the CTA you will be aware that the guidance is now that we ask people to test obviously with the situation in the Delta variant and other regions um, of the UK and Republic of Ireland we ask people that come into the country and remain overnight that they take LFD tests, which we provide free of charge. Um, and that is the reason for that is because other regions of the CTA have a higher prevalence of Delta. Uh, and this is obviously a, a mechanism for us to try and delay the, um, the increase and in import of that um, variant into Northern Ireland. Okay, thank you, Deborah and Paula. Go ahead, please. 
Sorry, Chair. Um, it, was, it was about the COVID passports, the COVID vaccine passports. I'm just wondering, is there any update on that? Um, it's just it, the constituency queries keep coming in. Thank you. Uh, hi, Paula. Yes, it is a, a topical question and we see lots of queries coming in around it. Um, it is something the department are looking at, not personally myself, but I'm aware that it is being looked at um, by the department. A range of teams are looking at it both from a technical aspect and a policy aspect. And we are working with colleagues in UK government and I think there's engagement um, or there will be engagement to ensure there's some sort of mechanism to ensure uh, we are aware of what is applied in the Republic of Ireland too. Um, in terms of timings, I don't understand if there's been anything um, advised on that, but it is work in progress uh, and it is happening as we speak. That's fine. Thank you. Okay, thank you. And I don't see any other indications there, Deborah, from, from members. So I think that is that is sufficient for now. Thank you for attending and for providing that information to the committee. And we see you again and all the best. We'll go ahead with our formal consideration. Thank you. Okay, thanks all. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, members. So we now move to formal consideration of that SR. Um, I can advise members that the SR is subject to the negative resolution procedure and that the examiner of statutory rules has no issues to raise. Have members any further issues to raise in relation to this SR? No, thank you, members. If not, then can I ask you to agree formally that the Committee for Health has considered SR 2021 forward slash 154, the Health Protection, Coronavirus, International Travel, Amendment Number 4, Regulations, NA 2021, and has no objection to the rule. Are we agreed? Agreed. Agreed. Thank you, members. Okay, members, a date, time, and place of next meeting then. Our next meeting will be on Thursday, 24th of June at 9.30 a.m. via video link. Thank you, members, and please take care. Thank you. Bye.